But um, so Anthony's background is that he's a prof he's a prof professor of philosophy, but he's also an expert on education. Until very recently, he was um, editor of, of Philosophy, which is a magazine a popularizing philosophy published by the Royal Institute of Philosophy, which he was also director of. Is that right? Yes. For a long, quite a long time. Um, he more or less founded the School of Education in the, uh, at the University of Buckingham, and was. Um, if you kind of collect conservative or somewhat reactionary philosophers, people were talking about Jordan Peterson this morning. Anthony should be in your in your stamp collection mm -hmm. because um, he, f for many years, was um, associated with um, the late Chris Woodhead, who was who invented the ins Ofsted inspections and many things like that. He was an advisor to the government on education. Um, also closely associated with Sir Roger Scruton. And, and so he's got many strings to his bow. He's just published with his daughter, and won a prize for it, um, a book about the apocalypse in art. So we'll be hearing about that tomorrow. And um, another book that really captured the headlines when it came out was, was it Plato Children? Hmm. Yeah, that was a, one that was widely yes. talked about. Um, and every few years, he publishes a book. He said to me, every few years, I publish a book complaining about how we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. There was one called The Elements of Fire, and one about plowshares. Or well, there was After Progress. After Progress, that's it. Um, so, but today, I've, I've asked him to talk to us about the philosophy of education. Why? Because uh, some of you who a couple of you here who are doing the master's program, it's an important component in that because we want to develop that as a, um, as a master's that's useful for teachers. But also because this is a place of education in the broadest sense. And um, we were talking this morning about liberal education and uh, its past and its present and its future. And we've been talking also about, um, even in our study of, of literature, this was highlighted this morning by, by, by Joe, that the, what's the message of the stories that are being told? How, how are we using stories to educate? And how um, the canon, that question that was going around this morning about the canon, um, what's education for? So I think... Um, even for those of you, a number of you are teachers, but even for those of you who aren't involved in education, this is going to be a moment where all sorts of sparks will fly and we'll make all sorts of connections with other things that we've been um, listening to and, and discussing. So uh, we've got two sessions, no particular order um, today. Philosophy of Education 1, and then we've got Philosophy of Education 2 uh, on Wednesday. Um, so... Uh, Without further ado, Professor Antonio here. Okay, Thank well, you. Thanks very much. Well, thank you. Um, and, um, well, as always, it's very nice to be here um, under the benign um, uh, supervision of, of Ferdy McDermott, who I think has um, um, done a magnificent job over the years, quite against um, the general... Um, run of things. Now, I'll just say very quickly about the three handouts. 
Um, the one called Why Educate, that, that is really, that, that was it's very much just a summary of a number of positions, which I did use at one time at Buckingham University. Um, the main virtue of it is it does contain various books to read, or some of them that you shouldn't read, but perhaps should read if you, if you see what I mean. Um, the other two articles, um, I, I may talk about classics and hogwash on Wednesday, um, depending on how we get on today. Um, the other one, liberal education, um, where can it be, or whatever it's called, that could be of interest to people who've been homeschooled, because I say something about homeschooling and the Christian classical um, movement of education in America at the end of it, which I think is quite an interesting phenomenon. You know, and I, I, I try to give it a fair, um, um, a fair wind. I'm critical of some aspects of it, but I think it's interesting and something that doesn't exist in my country. I don't think there is much homeschooling, but I know it's very big in the States. Anyway, so, so, so I'm just saying that, that, that you might find that of interest um, if you're interested in those things. Now, what I'm going to do today is I, I'm going to talk about, really, about the reason why people nowadays in education don't believe in liberal education, or at least they believe in it, but they don't believe it's how things should proceed. Um, and I'm going to trace this opposition to it back to what I think are its two um, progenitors, who are both philosophers, um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and John Dewey. Of course, people in the educational world don't read these people. They don't know where their ideas come from, and they don't discuss them. But I think what, once I've explained what Rousseau and Dewey say, with a few um, additions, you, you, you'll see why the sort of thinking that's in those um, writers permeates um, educational um, practice could say thought, but there isn't much thought. It permeates educational practice. Um, I'll just begin by saying you know, roughly what I take liberal education to be, j j just, just to frame this, and then we'll see why people um, oppose this, or why Rousseau and Dewey particularly oppose it. I mean, I think the first thing that most people who are liberal educators would hold is that human beings are not naturally good or perfectible or cultured, and that these are things which have to be um, inculcated. If you're Aristotelian, which I am, they have to be trained in culture and sorry, in virtue, and indeed they have to be trained in virtue before they can reason, and that's a very Aristotelian thought. Unfortunately, I'm not going to have much time to talk about Aristotle, but uh, but I think that's that's very profound, and actually. At one point, there is a convergence here between Rousseau and Aristotle, because Rousseau also thought, and I think on this point, and this point only, Rousseau is correct, that um, really you should teach or have to teach um, uh, sensibility and um, virtue before you can teach other things. So that's a very important part of elementary education um, for both Aristotle and Dewey. But anyway, but it's also very much within the general framework of liberal education. The second point about liberal education is that 
Um, we, as human beings, are, of course, we are biological beings, but we're also beings of history, and we've developed through history and culture. And these things, therefore, are not going to come to us instinctively. Um, if, if they're going to be learnt, they have to be taught. And I'm going to stress, during the course of these two lectures, both learning and teaching, especially teaching. According to the liberal educators, in education, what we, one of the things we aim to do, although perhaps not the only thing, but one of the things we aim to do is to transmit significant elements of what has been achieved, and this is important, formally and in a disciplined way, because many of the things that, that you would, or people would think that are important within the liberal education um, menu are things which uh, require disciplined initiation. I mean, you can't do physics without being trained in physics. Um, I would say you can't speak French without learning French grammar, but a lot of people don't agree with that. But, but it seems to me that actually if you want to say anything sensible in French, you have to do more than be able to um, order a cup of coffee, and you have to know about the subjunctive. Um, I mean, anyway, I, you know, I know that's a very um, controversial view. Um, um, so much of what is involved in liberal education will involve a disciplined initiation into the subject. And another point is that much of what's um, dealt with in, in liberal education is regarded as worthwhile in and for itself. So although it may have um, ulterior benefits, um, I mean, you were hearing about um, the, the Iliad um, earlier, um, and I think that um, people would think, or do think, that, that that is something worth studying for its own sake. Of course, um, you, you can pick up other things from it, like, for example, how to cheat in a chariot race. Um, you won't learn much, though, and this is a point actually Socrates made, you won't learn much about actually how to fight. Um, if you want to know how to fight, don't read the Iliad. Read, I don't know, Clausewitz or something. Um, but what you will learn in the Iliad is what it's like to fight and the passions and the um, furor, to use the Latin, the madness that comes over men when they're, and it's particularly men when they're fighting. And uh, that, of course, is where Hector falls down, that, that he twice disobeys the gods um, and carries on fighting when he should have stopped. And if he had stopped, Troy would have been saved. Anyway, um, so that's the sort of thing you can learn from um, the Iliad. Um, but it's also something which we would regard as worthwhile in itself. And I think what you know, people will say, and we can come on to talk about this maybe more in the next session, you know, what is worthwhile? Who decides what's worthwhile? Well, I think in the sciences, I mean, although there are some um, uh, subversive people like Paul Feyerabend, I think most people who study science seriously, I mean, either philosophers or scientists, w would think there is um, you know, a body of knowledge which, which um, it, it may not be absolutely certain, indeed in many ways isn't absolutely certain, but, but Everybody knows what you should be looking at in physics, um, you know, in quantum theory and, and all that sort of thing. Um, so there isn't really much dispute about what should be um, studied in 
science. Of course, in the humanities there is, but all I would say at this point is that I think that the test of time is, is crucial. We do not know now who is worth reading. You might think Ian McEwan is worth reading. I might think somebody else is worth reading. None of us will know whether they're worth reading until 50 years because the test of time shows um, that things which have appealed in one society, one moment of history, to one set of people also appeal to others. And that itself is a sign that there is something more universally worthwhile in these things. This is a point made strongly by Hume in an essay called On the Standard of Taste, in which he says, I'm quoting him more or less verbatim, the same Homer which pleased at Athens and at Rome pleases also in Paris and London. And of course, um, Hume was writing in about 1760. So, and, and I think it's, it's a powerful point. And, and um, of course, um, an, another point is that, that because, of, because of the test of time, or you know, us studying things that have survived the test of time, we are learning about cultures and mentalities other than our own. So it can also show up our own parochialism, our own fashions. These are people that have survived, um, that have been shown not just to be fashionable. Beethoven and Mozart were fashionable, but they've survived fashion. They have, well, actually Wittgenstein called them sons of God. And I, I think, the, you know, I, I would go along with that. Um, whereas Hummel, Clementi, John Field, people worth listening to, but they've not survived the test of time. Um, so I, I think this is a very powerful point that, that most liberal educators would, would um, accept and, and, and take um, a lot of heart from. Also, you, you, I, I think that, and I might say a bit more about, well, I'm not going to say more about it now, I might say a bit more about this on Wednesday, it may be that um, the things that are studied, or some of the things that are studied in liberal education also have a transcendent dimension in that they show us truths which are not just uh, about the here and now, but, but, but truths that have, um, as I say, some kind of genuinely spiritual transcendent dimension. Not all liberal educators would agree with that, but quite a lot would. Now, I think that in a way, what, what I've just said about liberal education is something that really until the time of, well, I was going to say until the time of Rousseau, until the time of Locke, John Locke, nobody would have thought, and Bacon, nobody would have thought of challenging. Um, Locke and Bacon um, thought that education should be, be really for um, producing um, skills and as Bacon put it, for the improvement of man's estate. So if you want to know where the utilitarian um, dimension of educational thinking comes from, I'm not really going to talk about that much. That actually comes from Francis Bacon um, in about 1600. He actually um, opposed the foundation of Charterhouse School, because he was also a very important politician um, in England, um, on the grounds that it taught the classics, and, or was going to teach the classics, and didn't teach um, modern knowledge. Um, and Locke, John Locke, held a similar view. But aside from Locke and Bacon, and that was a fairly um, 
I didn't have much influence. Um, people, I mean, not at the time, it's had a lot of influence since. Um, on the whole, people, it was only when people started attacking liberal education that people thought that it was necessary to defend it because it was what everybody thought education should be, or at least should centrally, because it didn't mean you shouldn't teach skills um, and, and things that were going to help people to be employed, but, but you also taught this, this great body of humane education. But when th this idea came under threat, um, partly under the influence of, of, of Rousseau and um, some of the people in the French Enlightenment, and also the, the ideas, the utilitarian ideas of Locke and Newton, sorry, Locke and Bacon became, uh, I don't think Newton was a utilitarian, Locke and Bacon became influential in the 19th century. Um, um, and, and these people were parodied by Dickens uh, um, under the um, title of um, Mr. Gradgrind. Um, I mean, I mean the, the, the critics of, of humane education. Um, um, it, it was only in the 19th century that people started um, seriously defending liberal education. I mean, you can find in, in Aristotle and Cicero and, and Aquinas up to a point, um, you, you can find things that sort of give you help, but, but th th these were really treated as fairly uncontroversial. The people who mounted an explicit defense of this way of thinking um, in the 19th century particularly, I would mention Newman in the idea of university, um, John Stuart Mill, some of you might be surprised to hear this, um, he, although he was a utilitarian, actually he believed very strongly in um, the value of both education and of liberal education and gave some very fine speeches at St Andrews University on this. Matthew Arnold, of course, in Culture and Anarchy, which is still a good read, um, very funny. Um, and in the 20th century, I, I could just mention T.S. Eliot, um, F.R. Leavis, Michael Oakeshott, who I may mention, and also that I know will appeal to many of the people here, Dorothy Sayers and C.S. Lewis, particularly Lewis in The Abolition of Man, I think is a fine book. So that, that's by way of kind of background just about liberal education. Now, let, let me give you some a, a few um, examples from um, educational thinking, if you can call it that, um, from England in recent years. Um, there was, when Chris Woodhead and I were involved in the national curriculum in England, what we tried to do was to focus on, in history, on British history, um, in music, on the classical tradition of music, which of course most children wouldn't meet otherwise, um, in ge geography, actually on geography and regional geography, um, places, um, and in literature on the sorts of things that you know, we, you've no doubt been hearing about, you know, Shakespeare, Milton, um, Dryden, um, etc., etc. Um, we were attacked by one professor of education as um, wanting to promote the curriculum of the dead. Um, and this was in an inaugural lecture, actually, at King's College London. Uh, another professor of education, also actually, funnily enough, from King's College London, um, in her inaugural lecture, she said that 
she had again attacked the idea of teachers teaching and said that pupils should construct their own learning. A phrase you may have heard, I'm not going to pick that phrase apart, but it is of course a barbarism um, in all kinds of ways, construct their own learning and knowledge. And you can't construct knowledge. Um, anyway, um, uh, and um, the more, the kind of approaches that we were trying to favour in, in the national curriculum, they were elitist and absolutist, perpetuated by right-wing philosophers and their colleagues in university armchairs. Well, actually, I have to say, not by many of my colleagues in university armchairs. Um, and then a third professor of education, again, in an inaugural lecture, um, recommended, or recommends, recommends, as I still do, um, that you should turn the educational spotlight away from teachers and teaching and the content of what is taught to the pupil, the pupil, who is now called the learner, by the way, regarded as a social being, the product of his or her environment, with, together with the creation of learning opportunities which fit. So, I mean, the, these sorts of ideas are, are just absolutely pervasive in, in um, educational thinking and practice in um, certainly in, in, in Britain and I suspect in the United States and um, also in, in France. And by the way, don't believe, don't accept, if anybody tells you education in Scotland is wonderful, that is complete nonsense. Um, Scotland is even worse than England. Um, it does even worse on, on just on literacy and numeracy. Um, so, so don't buy into that myth. Um, anyway, so where, where do these ideas come from? Well, I'm going to now talk a bit about Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, Rousseau wrote a very influential book on education, um, which was published in 1762 and shortly afterwards put on the Index of Forbidden Books. It was called Emile. Um, and you might think, uh, if I describe to you what Emile says, well, I'm going to, you might think it's rather odd this book has become so um, influential because uh, Rousseau thinks, um, well, I say the first thing he thinks is, is this, um, and I think a lot of teachers think this, um, uh, th this, what I'm about to read, he is, is in a letter he wrote shortly after writing Emile to the Archbishop of Paris, who I think took it fairly seriously. Um, Rousseau said, the fundamental principle of all morality about which I reasoned in all my writings and developed in Emile with all the clarity of which I was capable, and actually he was capable of clarity, is that man is a naturally good being, loving justice and order, that there is no original perversity in the human heart, and that the first movements of nature are always right. Okay? Man is a naturally good being, loving justice and order. There is no original perversity in the human heart. Now, I think actually that is a very widely held belief how anybody can hold it, looking at human history or um, uh, even the present, it, it, I, I find hard to understand. I, I think nearly, you know, if you go into the average primary school and ask the teachers what they thought, they would come up with some sort of guff like that. 
um, I'm sure. Um, and if you say, well, actually, um, there's inherent wickedness in people, you, you would be beaten out of the um, out of the, the, the classroom as a child abuser, I should think. <laughs> um, even though the, probably in that very same classroom, only the other day, a seven-year-old child hit the teacher. Um, um, now, um, I, I just Joseph de Maistre, um, who was one of the first critics of um, Enlightenment thinking and particularly of Rousseau's ideas, said that to say that man is naturally good is about as good as saying sheep are naturally carnivorous, but everywhere they eat grass. <laughs> now, Rousseau, of course, does realize that holding this view about um, the natural goodness of human beings does create a problem because Rousseau did not think, and indeed he very much did not think, that, that everywhere people were good. He thought there was a lot of wickedness in society, in, in what people did and how people um, behaved to, to each other. Where did this wickedness come from? Um, he thought, if I just go on to with a bit more of this quotation from the letter to the Archbishop of Paris, he says that the only passion that is born with man, namely love of self, uh, amour de soi, is a passion in itself indifferent to good and evil and becomes good or bad only by accident and depending on the circumstances in which it develops. I have shown that all the vices imputed to the human heart are not natural to it. Now, Rousseau thinks there are two types of self-love. Uh, and I think, again, I mean, there is some truth in this. There's amour de soi and amour propre. Unfortunately, in English, they're both translated as self-love, so that creates some complications. Amour de soi is this sim simple desire to preserve yourself. And included in that would be the desire to um, have food, have shelter, have companionship up to a point, and to have sex. And according to Rousseau, all these things are good um, and, and um, th th they should be allowed to flourish. Where the evil comes in is when you start comparing yourself with other people and that type of self-love, um, which you might call um, vanity, vanity, yes, uh, is amour propre. And he, Rousseau thinks that all the evils that come about come because as well as having this good amour de soi, we also have amour propre. He doesn't explain where it comes from, by the way. So you know, this is a big lacuna in Rousseau's thought. But anyway, it's everywhere in 18th century society, according to Rousseau. And um, even in music, um, Rousseau thinks that um, uh, the operas that were being performed and produced in Paris in the 1760s and 70s, I don't know what they were, Rameau, I suppose, maybe Handel, he, he thought these were simply um, examples of, of um, virtuosic and um, uh, self-seeking display and, and that they were evil, they were wrong. He, was, he thought this so strongly that he wrote some very boring music on his own that, 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 that didn't, um, 
I mean, he was actually very <laughs> he was actually a genius, but but um, w which didn't have the kind of um, showing off. I mean, the course was tremendous showing off in in these operas. Anyway, um, so and but Rousseau thought that nobody would do this um, this kind of unnatural singing um, if um, they weren't getting um, if there wasn't competition. Um, you know, trying to show yourself better than another. And, and I think, obviously, there is some truth in this. Um, in fact, René Girard, I don't know if anybody here has looked into René Girard, R René Girard also thinks that, that um, a lot of evil, in fact, um, yeah, that, that violence in society comes about because people are trying to see themselves as better than other people. Anyway, to, but to go back to, to, to Rousseau, Rousseau's, the education that Rousseau devises in Emile is designed to promote the, the good self-love and prevent the bad self-love from, from growing up. So what has to happen is that Emile has to be um, uh, taken away, taken out of human society and tutored on his own, and it is a him, tutored on his own by a tutor in the country um, and away from other human beings and the kind of comparisons that he might otherwise be induced to make between himself and other people. And um, he will learn about nature, he will get in tune with nature, he will learn um, the, the virtues that, that come from that, um, he will indulge sports, pleasures, and his delightful instincts in line with the particular stage of development which he's in. Um, he will be allowed to play and discover on his own, and I'm sure as I mention these words, um, bells will be ringing, um, uh, and um, he won't be subject to any of the um, vicious kind of um, comparisons and, and um, gossip and so on um, that, that will, would happen were he in 18th century society with other children in you know, kind of normal sort of existence. He thinks that as he moves from pure instinct, he will develop a form of rationality in learning, for example, that if he puts his hand in the fire, it will hurt. Um, so the tutor is supposed to arrange things so that um, Emile is, is um, open to a certain amount of danger, but, but not, not too much danger. But So he'll learn certain things, he'll begin to understand how the world works. And he thinks that, he doesn't really explain quite what, how this will happen, but he thinks that if, if Emile is kept in this kind of environment um, until... 12 or 13, and they're only then brought into um, contact with other people, um, that he won't be subject to the kind of amour propre, which um, Rousseau thinks is the root of all evil. And um, Rousseau also, I mean, I'm, this also connects with, with his um, political philosophy more generally, um, Rousseau also takes as his ideal society the village life which he found and ran away from um, in Savoy, Savoie, 
um, where, I mean, according to Rousseau's idea, was people would discuss things, you know, the village community would, would discuss things in a non-competitive way around the village oak and, and come to decisions through what um, um, everybody thought was reasonable. Um, out of this comes the notion of the general will, which isn't the will of any individual person, but the will of all and each. Um, actually, nobody might want the general will, but you might all want it, um, if, if, if that was what it was. I mean, that, 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 that's Rousseau's idea. And of course, that had tremendous um, totalitarian potential, th this notion. But um, I, Rousseau didn't li live to see it working out in, in the French Revolution. Um, and to be fair, this side of his thought d doesn't come out too much in Emile. What comes out in Emile is the idea of the child playing, developing naturally, discovering things for itself in harmony with nature and kept away from um, unnecessary influences, which include um, learning about um, unnecessary things well, I have to be a bit careful here, because actually Rousseau was a great fan of the Roman Republic. Um, and I suppose he thinks that, that people ought to learn about the Roman Republic eventually. But without learning um, things that would only be to the pupil's detriment, I mean, maybe they shouldn't be reading Ovid. Or maybe they shouldn't be reading Ovid anyway. Um, but but um, the pupil would be carefully screened from influences that might, be harmful in the sense of, of leading to competitive instincts. So any, any kind of study that, that, that um, went in that direction, um, the tutor in, in Emil's um, education would keep him away from. And of course you might say, well, um, wouldn't this kind of thing prevent um, uh, both expertise and excellence? Rousseau said, it will. And that's what I want. Um, uh, he says, the world of reality has its bounds. The world of imagination is boundless. As we cannot enlarge the one, let us restrict the other. Because he thinks that once you start allowing sort of e excellence, you'll get competition, and then competition will lead to all the, van all the not just to vanity, but all to, the ev to all the evils that he thinks um, follow from that. So individual excellence must be sacrificed uh, for a life and an education that brings us closer to a natural goodness and harmony. Now, that, that's a, just a thumbnail sketch of Rousseau. You might say, well, this is ridiculous, um, that the whole thing is based on the child being kept away and kept in a, you know, presumably a manor house somewhere in the country, um, that um, would require quite a lot of money, uh, um, you know, the very thing that's produced by the vanity that, that Rousseau objects to. Well, uh, in fact, um, Rousseau, of course, particularly with the idea of the natural goodness of the child and the child um, being a discoverer through play, that captured the imagination of very influential educators in the 19th century. And I would mention three in particular, um, Pestalozzi, um, who, unlike Rousseau, actually ran some schools in Switzerland um, and became, as it happened, very influential on American 
education. Pestalozzi emphasised the importance of individual differences between the children and the role of child-initiated activity as opposed to rote learning. And education should, he said, develop to its should uh, allow the child to develop its fullest individuality and talent that each child possesses by nature. So, you know, if you hear a teacher saying every child has their own abilities and their own potential, well, in a sense they do, but, but they're probably echoing this Pestalozzian um, idea that, you know, some ch children might not be very good at this, but they will be very good at something else. And that, of course, unfortunately, is a pious myth. Um, uh, then there was Froebel, um, who um, again stressed the inner development of the in, sorry the inner development yes of the child towards full self consciousness, um, and again he founded kindergartens. Um, kindergarten means a garden of or for children. Um, I think Pestalozzi was the first person to use the term. Um, and of course, you know, if you go to the typical kindergarten, well, you know what you'll see. You'll see um, ideas. Sorry, did I say Froebel? Yeah, you, you'll, you'll see Froebel's ideas being um, implemented in the chaos that's going on in, in there. Um, and then, of course, I sh should also mention Maria Montessori, um, who, again, um, thought that in the early years, children should be given an environment rich in materials which they can manipulate and teach themselves through. Now, I'm not saying that all these ideas are necessarily wrong or stupid. I'm just trying to say where they, 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 they come from. I, th I think one of the difficulties is that you might think that there is some truth in some of this um, in, in the um, early years, as it's called, but it's not so, wouldn't be so good um, uh, for later education. And, uh, and, and that's a problem, I think, that all these systems um, wrestle with, or perhaps they don't wrestle with them, but, but they, they don't really overcome them. Um, also, I don't think that um, myself, that, that um, even very young children should necessarily be kept away from rote learning, heaven forbid, rote learning, and, and um, being taught how to do sums and so on and so forth. And um, just to show how wicked I am, I'm teaching my seven-year-old grandson Latin. My four-year-old grandson has got very jealous about this, so I'm teaching him Greek. <laughs> and there are, in fact, some nice books um, that you can do this with. Um, anyway, um, but of course I'm not, I don't stop them playing as well. I mean, you know, I don't see why you can't do both. And anyway, um, I should also mention, as influenced by um, Rousseau, um, the influential psychologists Jean Piaget and Lawrence Kohlberg. Now, Piaget, um, he was Swiss, like Rousseau and um, Anyway, anyway, um, a lot of things seem to come out of Switzerland. But Piaget was a, an experimental psychologist and did do experiments. Um, unfortunately, his experiments were all wrong. But
But what, what he thought was, and this has become very influential as well, was that children had a naturally sequential scheme of development, and that's very much in the spirit of Rousseau. So you couldn't, for example, teach um, children abstract activities like um, learning simple sums before they'd mastered concrete activities. Um, so, so there was a, an idea, and I, I've heard this, you know, teachers teaching my own, own children have told me this, that, that, you know, you can't do something before such and such an age because they won't have reached the, the stage in, in question. And, and I just think that that's just wrong, and it, it's been shown to be empirically wrong as well, that if, if you redo Piaget's experiments, it put using different terms, the children will be doing things they're not supposed to be doing according to the Piagetian scheme. But again, that's, this is a very influential scheme of thought that, or, or type of thought. That, that, and Kohlberg does a similar thing for moral education. Um, so I'm just saying that these are people that you might come across um, who have been very much um, influenced in the spirit of Rousseau. Kohlberg on moral education thinks that children can't um, uh, reason um, about things like fairness and justice until quite late on in, in their um, um, moral development. Um, right, now R Rousseau and the followers of Rousseau, particularly these people, early years people, th they might be seen as the kind of um, romantic, child-centred wing of progressive education, I could use the term progressive education, to include um, all of the, the things which I'm discussing which are opposed to um, the type of liberal education that, that I um, just outlined. Um, Rousseau did not say very much, although he was very interested in politics and political development, he didn't say much about education as a political device although he thought certain political uh, uh, consequences would follow from his um, educational um, proposals. The more um, social aspect and socialistic aspect of all this is to be found in John Dewey, um, who was an American philosopher um, and psychologist who had a huge influence on um, American education and also on American politics in various ways. Um, he was extremely old when he died, I think in the 1950s, he was about 90. Um, when he was in, in the 1890s, um, Dewey was in Chicago and he did set up a school, I think actually more than one school. So unlike Rousseau, Dewey did practice what he preached, at least up to a point. Um, and th this school um, still exists, or one of the schools that Dewey set up. Um, it, was, it was called the laboratory school when he set it up. It was called something else now. And I had the unfortunate experience of being invited to address some um, leaders of education by Anthony Seldon, in fact. Yeah. Um, and he didn't tell me who these people were. And he said these were the 30 leading head teachers from the world. He called it the G8. And um, so I gave my usual kind of anti-Jewish spiel. 
and sitting in the front row was the headmistress of this uh, Dewey School. But we had a very nice conversation afterwards. Anyway, um, now, um, okay, now Dewey wrote. I, I, I told you that, that um, Rousseau wrote Emile. Uh, Dewey wrote a number of books on education, of which the um, the, the most uh, um, uh, substantial one is called Democracy and Education, and he published that in. Uh, 1916, um, a shorter book, um, and in some ways more accessible, is called Enterprise and Edu sorry, experience. I didn't believe in enterprise. Experience and Education in 1938, and he wrote a couple of other books um, around 1900 about about his his um, schools. Now, in 1899 in the School and Society, one of these early books, um, Dewey was very critical of what he saw as the romantic individualism of Montessori and obviously of Rousseau. And he said that the subject matter, the full, sorry, the full meaning of any subject matter in, in a school is secured, this is a quotation, is secured only when the studies are presented from the standpoint of the relation they bear to the life of society. I'll read that again. The, the true meaning, the full meaning of any subject matter is secured only when the studies are presented from the standpoint of the relation they bear to the life of society. And by the life of society, he meant the life of this society, Chicago in 1890. So, if you were studying the Iliad, which you wouldn't if you were following Dewey's prescriptions, you would then have to work out um, what, what bearing it had on the stockyards or um, the exploitation of workers um, or whatever was going on in Chicago at the time. I mean, that, that's what it means. Now, I should warn you, I mean, that's what it means. Whether Dewey actually believed this is another question. I should warn you that Dewey... Um, was a very capacious thinker, um, that he said one thing in one place and exactly the opposite in another place. So whenever I've written or spoken about Dewey, um, I've always been very careful to quote his words because the usual response from a follower of Dewey is to say, he might sort of say that, but actually he says something else, or even deny it that he says it. Um, and uh, this is true. I, I mean, Dewey does say things that contradict the things that I'm going to give you from Dewey. But the influence of Dewey has been, I think, largely from the things that I'm going to quote. So I'm now going to quote from um, Experience and Education of 1938. The teacher is not, according to Dewey in 1938, a quote, an external boss or dictator, imposing on children standards alien to their current lives. I, I, admit, I paraphrase that bit. He is rather the leader of group activities in which, now this is the quotation, his or her suggestion, note, is not a mould for a cast iron result, but is a starting point to be developed into a plan through contributions from the experience of all engaged 
in the learning process. And in a way, I don't need, I'm going to tell you more about Dewey, but I don't really need to say any more because it's all contained in that sentence. The teacher is the leader of group activities. The, the teacher's suggestion is not a mould for a cast-iron result, but is a starting point to be developed into a plan, a starting point to be developed into a plan through contributions from the experience, experience of all engaged in the learning process. And of course, all engaged include all the pupils. So all the pupils are going to have something to say. And their contribution must be all somehow rolled up into this plan that's being developed. Um, now, there, there is a very political side to this in, in Dewey's mind, um, in that he thinks that um, democracy itself is not um, just a means of kicking out people when you don't like them, which is what I think democracy is, and all it could be, really. Um, and, it's f and it's wonderful from that point of view that you can kick the bastards out from time to time. Um, Dewey wanted democracy to be something where everything was decided by continuous, endless discussion, negotiation, stakeholder with this and that. He didn't use the word stakeholder, but, but democracy for him, and, and this is very American in a way, um, was very much a kind of um, continual process in which everybody was involved all the time. Um, so, I mean, Dewey would very much have um, liked the, what, what you get in, a, in America where, you know, you're always voting for all the town officials, aren't you, and that, and that sort of thing. Um, um, no, again, I mean, you, 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 could, you could say this, this is a, a view. Um, but, but Dewey thought that the classroom was democracy in miniature. So it itself should operate on democratic principles in, in, in the sort of way I've just described, um, you know, this development of this plan um, all the time. Um, and um, in doing this, pupils would then become accustomed to taking part in this sort of participatory democracy that, that Dewey advocated. He also thought, well, I think I've already quoted something in which he more or less says that, he also thought that education ought to take place or could only properly take place if what was being learnt, and possibly taught, but, but more learnt, um, was something that had relation to the um, life of the society in which the pupils, learners, lived. And so, in one of his early books, I can't remember which one, um, he gives an example of what should learning be focused round in Chicago in the 1890s. And the answer is, or at least one Oh, he doesn't say this is not the only thing, but, but, but this is one thing that it could. Flax. Flax, because Chicago then was a great centre of, um, I don't know, um, textiles and things. Yeah. So flax is very important 
in the textile industry. Um, and Dewey thought, and you know, in a way, I mean, obviously there is some truth in this, um, that if you wanted to learn about flax, everything about flax, you would have to learn about its chemical properties. Um, I suppose then that might take you into physics. You'd have to learn about um, the way it um, was used in, in making textiles, so then it would take you into technology and maybe design. Um, you'd have to learn about how to sell it, so this would take you into maths and economics. Um, you'd have to learn where it came from. Maybe it comes from Bangladesh, or I don't know what it was called Bangladesh in those days. So you'd have to learn about Bangladesh, and you'd have to learn about the history of flax. So, and, and of course, this is a fantastically powerful idea um, that is very, very prevalent in contemporary educational practice, that you have a topic that takes up the whole term, and in learning, and, it, and everything, all the other subjects, all, so all the subjects rather, not all the other subjects, all the subjects are um, derived from the way this topic is being um, addressed. Um, Dewey is also um, a cosmopolitan um, and he thinks, and again, I mean, you, you could see the point probably in Chicago in the 1890s, um, although he's very American, um, he thinks that um, any insistence on a national or local culture against cosmopolitanism he sees as offending against humanity. And he thinks that most systems of education are guilty of focusing on just one culture, one um, kind of heritage against or and excluding others. Um, he also thinks that um, the way that subjects have developed in um, traditional education, in traditional liberal education is um, uh, factitious. Um, it, it's something that has no real justification and it's something which, that's developed um, without any true explanation. But um, in a way this forces um, learners to look at things in ways that are not related to their own lives. So when you learn a subject like physics, you're not looking at the way the objects you're examining um, relate to the tram you got on to get to school. Um, you're looking at it in terms of you know, laws and theories that, that um, Newton and, and people like that have, have um, adumbrated and then have been um, put into textbooks and, and into systems and so on. Um, so he thinks that this type of study in subjects, um, it, it breaks down the natural connections between things, it breaks down the natural connection between learning and, and, what, uh, and your life, and it also, and this is where of course he would agree with, or does agree with Rousseau, it also sets up elites and, and competition and um, uh, uh, yeah, um, classes, um, in which certain things are privileged and, and others um, are done down. Um, he's against 
um, the kind of thing that many liberal educators might be in favour of, um, which is developing the inner personality. I know you might think that, that studying Eliot's poetry has got something to do with your own spiritual development, your inner personality. Dewey says, the idea of perfecting an inner personality is a sure sign of social divisions. So as I already said, he's against social divisions. What is called inner is simply that, what is called inner is simply that which does not connect with others, which is not capable of full and free communication. And that takes us back to when I said the, the bit I mentioned about um, the, the learning being a plan to which all would contribute. Um, so the inner is what's not capable of full and free communication. What is termed spiritual culture has usually been futile with something rotten about it just because it's been conceived as a thing which a man might have internally and therefore exclusively. So it, there's very much the idea in Dewey, as there is in Rousseau, of what all can't have, none shall have, even if the, the thing has its own intrinsic merits. But of course, for them, there aren't any intrinsic merits. For, for Dewey, what, what counts is, is, well, he's very vague. He, he talks all the time about growth. Um, but, but what counts is only what leads to growth and, and social um, cohesion, social activity, and so on. Um, so he argues against um, a, a lot of the type of, uh, a lot of the material that, that is in the kind of curriculum that, that existed in the um, grammar schools of, of his day. And he says that unapplied knowledge that doesn't lead to solving social problems, you know, like maybe, let, well, let's say, again, you know, you were looking at, looking at Homer. Well, learning how to scan Homer is quite important. Um, that, that is useless. Um, it wouldn't have anything to do with, with, with um, um, improving social conditions or solving problems in, in um, Chicago. It's static, his term, cold storage, miscellaneous junk. Um, and perhaps, again, there might be some truth in this in some cases. And actually Newman also um, argues against people simply becoming expert in certain um, academic pursuits and using this to be snobbish and exclusive. So, I mean, there definitely there are dangers here, and I'm not saying that everything all the criticisms that, that Dewey makes are um, wrong. Um, however, the thing that Dewey is probably most famous for, but he did resile from this in later life, but it's the thing where his influence is, is still persists, is in discovery learning. Now, Dewey thinks that every child is discovering all the time. So it's not just um, Newton and Kepler and Galileo and Einstein and Bohr who make discoveries. When um, you know, one of my grandsons tells me something about 
steam trains that he's looked at. He's discovering something. Um, Dewey, of course, is playing on an ambiguity in the word discover. Um, he says, and this is a quotation, and then, I'll, then I'll ask you what the ambiguity is. He says, the child of three who discovers what can be done with blocks, or of six who finds out what he can make by five cents and five cents together is really, his words, a discoverer. So what Dewey is saying is, is true if you just look at it subjectively from the point of view of the child. The child may well have discovered something that he or she did not know before. Um, let's hope that plenty of that goes on. But does this mean that there isn't something to be said for, and this is the way that this view of Dewey's is often interpreted, that there isn't something to be said for the teacher coming in to the classroom with a cast iron result which he lays down as an external boss or dictator. Um, I mean, to put it no stronger, um, if you waited for every child to discover everything, um, you wouldn't get anywhere, the child wouldn't get anywhere. Um, you know, you, you're, you're asking the child to recapitulate the whole of human history and culture in its few years of being um, um, in, 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 in the classroom. Um, well, the classroom, of course, is, is, is a hubbub of activity in which there's lots of discovering going on. And as somebody once put it, of, of this learning, all doing different things at tables, it's the, um, I've got to be a bit careful how I phrase this. Um, yes, it's the, uh, well, it's the uneducated leading the uneducated. I'll put it no stronger than that. I think sometimes teachers like this sort of thing because they're not very competent and don't know things themselves. But then I say, well, you're, you're, you only have your um, justification, your authority as a teacher, if you know more than the pupil. Now, and, and your first responsibility is to transmit this to the pupil. Of course, this doesn't preclude um, discussion. Indeed, one, one would hope that, that after a point, even with young children, there will be discussion, but discussion framed by the knowledge which has already been imparted and gained. And I'd also say the same thing about um, skills, which obviously has become a very um, big thing in progressive education. <coughs> that, um, again, I mean, I'm not against children learning skills. Indeed, I'm very much in favor of it. I think it'd be very good if they learnt the skill of um, writing Greek prose, let's say. But that's not one that's valued. But um, skills are acquired in conjunction with knowledge, and different skills um, are acquired with different types of knowledge. Um, I mean, for example, if, if you think 
well, I mean, I do think that, that um, there are skills of mathematical reasoning, um, and these involve something that some people find hard to do. It, it involves abstracting from things. It involves working with abstractions and symbols. Um, and it involves generalizing. And it involves prescinding from everything that makes things humanly interesting, apart from mathematics itself. Um, now, that type of skill, um, which one hopes that, that mathematicians and even children doing um, elementary mathematics will acquire up to a point, um, that's pretty useless. Um, if you're trying to look at a human situation where a moral decision has to be made, because in looking at a human situation, um, I mean, was... Um, Yeah. Was Priam right to be kind, because he was kind to Helen? Well, we heard one view. Um, there might be another view. Um, Helen apologizes to Priam in, I think, book four or five of the Iliad, and he tells her, yeah, not, not to blame herself because she was in the grip of Aphrodite. Um, what should Priam have done? And, uh, I mean, you know, to, to decide this, you don't want mathematical reasoning. You want a sensitivity to human affairs and to um, the details of the situation and the moment and the character, you know, and the Prime on the one hand and the sad Helen on the other, and so on and so forth. So, so I'm, I'm now, but, but probably those, let's call them skills, that sensitivity um, won't help you um, in, in, in mathematics. So I'm just saying, and, and, and so on with, with other um, subjects. They have different skills. So there's no kind of general um, skill that can be acquired, no transferable skills, and, and no um, sense that what we should be acquiring is skills rather than the knowledge and sensitivity that, that those skills go with. Now, um, I, I've really, I mean, I could say a lot more about Dewey, but I, I, I'm not going to. I'm just going to say that, um, just add one point, that Rousseau and Dewey have had um, huge influence on um, educational thought um, since their time. But there's a further strand that's in a way added to it, although I think, I think the kind of um, uh, seeds of it are in Rousseau and Dewey. Um, it, it, it's a kind of um, relativism um, that says that um, uh, uh, and if I put it like this, you, you can probably see it would have roots in both Rousseau and Dewey, the kind of relativism that says that what you say is worth learning is only what you think is worth learning, and it's what um, the um, upper classes or the hegemonic authorities, whatever word they use, 
Um, there's a lot of jargon in, in affecting all of this. Um, but, but, it, but it's basically the idea is that, that you know, if um, Latin is on the curriculum, let's say, um, that's only because um, it, it's a kind of upper class thing that, that um, certain people or certain echelons in society have decided and it's always used or often used as a way of um, separating um, the elite in the social sense from the non-elite. So, and again, um, you know, the literature that's being studied now is, is only the literature that um, it was laid down by, you know, to quote my um, academic colleague, by um, dead white males. Well, actually, if you went into a literature department now, you'd find that's very far from the case. Um, so, is it the case that um, do we accept the relativistic argument that, that all these educational structures and institutions are simply part of um, the current um, social structures, the hegemonic social structures? Well, the first thing to say to these people is, what about you? Um, not, not that, of course, they are now the hegemony now. So in a way, perhaps it, you should say it. But, but you should say, well, if you think everything simply comes from one stratum of society, if you're a relativist in that way, what about your theories? Doesn't, doesn't, if this is a general, if this relativistic principle is a general principle, it must apply to your theories. So why should we take any notice of your theories? But of course, they want to say their theories somehow managed to escape from, from th this general um, um, infrastructure, superstructure kind of um, picture. Um, you know, the, the infrastructure in, in the Marxist um, analysis is, is what um, underlies everything. That's the economic structure. And everything, culture, and everything above it is simply a reflection of the infrastructure. But, but um, through a kind of um, glass that makes it look as though it's self-standing. But, but then the question is, yes, what about Marx himself? What about your theories? OK, well, let, let's put that reply to one side. I mean, I think it's important. And, and I would simply say that what I said at the beginning to this relativism, that, of course, nobody is saying or should be saying that any current set of books or theories is the only one that should ever be studied. And that would be really stupid. Um, I mean, all scientific theories are probably false. Um, at least that's what one, one might learn by looking at the history of science. So some, some though, are better than others. Um, Newton's theory was found to be false after having had 200 years of almost uncriticized um, um, acceptance, and for good reasons, because it worked very well, and a lot of it is true. But we now know that, in the literal sense, it's false. And it may well be that the theories which people go on about now, well, actually, I shouldn't say that in a denigrating way, I don't mean to be, but um, 
the theories which are now accepted as true will later be found out as false. Darwin says himself, Darwin says um, in 500 years people might look on his theories and those of Newton and um, um, yeah, his theories and those of Newton as he looks on the views of the Tierro del Fuegans that he met when he was on the voyage of the Beagle. Um, so, so nobody's saying, or should be saying, that, that science is um, set in stone. It, it should be developing and, and mistakes should be being found out all the time. And as far as literature and the humanities goes, um, I, I, I mean, all I would say is other than looking at particular works in detail and showing their qualities or not, um, is I would, I would emphasize the, the test of time, which I've mentioned from, from Hume. Um, um, and I think that people who do look into the works that have s stood the test of time often do find things worthwhile in them, usually do. Um, but if they don't, then eventually the works will go and the canon will change and that, that's, that happens, that, that, that happens. I don't think one can um, resist that or indeed one should try to resist it. One could certainly admit that into things that are worthwhile, things that have been overlooked. So I don't, th I don't see that, that having a, a group of works that you think are worth studying um, in any way means that this list that you've got or this group that you've got is um, exclusive or set in stone for all time or is unjustifiable. It's, un it's justifiable to the extent that you can show that it has the qualities or the things in it have, have the qualities that, that they do. But that would involve some reading and study rather than simply um, a kind of a priori um, assertion to the effect that it's all um, the curriculum of the dead. I think I will stop there, as I'm sure you've had um, far too much already from me, and it's been a very long day. But I mean, now, I should also have said if people want to interrupt or ask questions, they should. But I didn't say it, so nobody has interrupted. But, <laughs> but they should have anyway. Yes? Um, just a point on when Dewey was writing in the 90s, there was a very important thing that happened within his consciousness in Chicago. Yes. May 4th, 1886. Oh, yes. Does anybody know what that is? I don't, so please tell me. Those are the Haymarket riots, where the people started rebelling against the, the, that was where workers tried to organize, and there was great conflict from that, and that was the beginnings of the idea that, well, even if you're management, or if you're a worker, or even if you're working on the loading dock, or even if you're doing this, everybody should be paid the same amount. Yes. And that, and so some of Dewey's thinking was approaching some of this 
trying to create an environment where this outcome would, would occur. Yeah. Actually, a very interesting thing is, is that out of that environment, an immigrant, or the son of immigrants who couldn't even speak English, was Saul Bellow, who became one of the best writers of the 20th century. But not out of Dewey's school, I mean, out of, out of, out of the Chicago, the melting pot of Chicago. Another um, link on that. Yeah. The graduates of the lab school were not allowed into the great book program at the University of Chicago by Mortimer <laughs> J. Adler. And they had to have a special application for it. Mortimer J. Adler, of course, was a Catholic convert in the lab. Yes. <coughs> Actually, talking to this lady, in fact, this school was about the most academic school you could possibly imagine now. I mean, the lab school. You mentioned in passing Joseph de Mestre, but one of the reasons that he thought Rousseau was such a tremendous blockhead was Rousseau had this idea that nature was somehow this good, golden, happy place where everybody's dancing through glades and birds are bringing you honey cups and things like that. And Joseph de Mestre's response to that was, and I think he did it in some letters, but not, uh, not uh, as defined as rigorously in some of his criticisms, but he said, nature is red in tooth and claw, and you cannot go out into nature and think that it's all going to be wonderful outcomes because animals go and kill and eat each other. Yes, as Darwin pointed out. <laughs> they're like animals. Yeah, they're like animals. <laughs> so he said Rousseau's conception of, of, uh, of nature could only have been uh, produced in the salons of Paris. Mm. Yeah, so when he, when he was walking yes, in, in the Haute-Savoie, yeah. while living with Madame de Varon. Yeah. Mm. Um, actually, I, will tell, I, I can't resist telling you this. Um, Dewey's own school started with three teachers for 32 pupils. It rose to 16 teachers for 60 children and ended with 23 teachers plus 10 assistants for 140 children. So... So he found the work in his own teachers. Yeah, and I think yeah. weren't most of the students, pupils from it, from the university, I think. But anyway, I don't know whether it worked or not. Why did Adler refuse to let them come on into it? He, he, he hated you. Oh, I see. Ah. <laughs> right, okay. Yes? There's a book right behind you, uh, Professor Alan Bloom's Closing of the American Mind. Who also it, came from Chicago. Yes, and there's a chapter, he has a whole, an entire chapter in there about Rousseau, pretty much what you said. Yes, though he liked Rousseau. I know, yes, anyway. Yeah. He was kind of critical of him. Yes. Foddy, yes. Do you have a comment to make on Baden-Powell? Because it's interesting how, I think somebody was saying that what we do is more important than what we think. When did that come up today? I mean, Baden-Powell's theories about child development seem to be all wrong because they're the same as Rousseau's. Ah. <laughs> but um, in the sense that there's no such thing as a bad boy and you can learn everything experientially. And oh, did baden I didn't know he thought that. Well, yeah. that's seems to be, that seems to be a big line of yeah. argument in Scouting for Boys. Yeah. But I mean, in, on the, in France, for example, the constituency... For, for scouting has been um, traditionally good Catholic families um, with a set of values mm. they want mm. to impart. And, you know, the, the, but the theory doesn't really seem to fit. 
No. I, I mean, I don't see anything wrong with uh, scouting. I mean, you know, providing it's, you know, in, in conjunction with, with other things and, and, you know, in conjunction with an academic education. And by the way, I don't think an academic education is, is suitable for everybody. So, y yeah. so I might be wrong. Or not a foot, not. So go on. Yeah, I, I've talked but too much anyway. Rousseau was seen as a progressive in like the educational community of his time. Well, not of his time, obviously. His book was banned. But now his, is his stuff referenced uh, continuously? Well, into, into, like, I, I must admit, I, I makes me ill to have to read um, stuff about education. <laughs> um, so I don't read very much of it. But, but my, my suspicion is that Rousseau, he'd be referred to, but I doubt if people actually read him very much, because he's, you know, he'd be too difficult for them to read. People, people um, still talk about Piaget and all those other people. They talk about them, but do they read them? Uh, I think they get second-hand um, kind of, well, as I've given you, of course, mm. um, <laughs> uh, second-hand accounts of them. That wasn't really my question. My question was, since his idea of a proper education was to promote the self-preservation uh, and to discourage the self-comparison and yes. vanity. But self-comparison and vanity, that creates a competition that allows for progress. So... Well, he... Ah, yes, that's right. And if he's, if he's supposed to be seen as a progressive educator, then how hmm. can he be so distant from the concept of competition? Okay, well, he wasn't a progressivist in that sense, and although he was, actually I was going to say friendly, he wasn't friendly with anybody, although he associated with the Enlightenment people, you know, the, Les Lumières, and some people see him as an Enlightenment figure, he was actually one of the first people to criticize the Enlightenment um, on the grounds that um, the kind of rationality that, that um, it promoted um, was untrue to nature and I think he probably thought it was untrue to um, human nature. So he wasn't a progressive in this, he wasn't a scientific progressivist. Did, did Rousseau agree with Dewey's concept of uh, democracy in a classroom, or was that... Oh, yeah, he would, he, he would probably have liked that, because, but because yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, but if he would have agreed with democracy in a classroom, then he would have... <laughs> wouldn't he have also agreed with that continuing into political life, like you said, except with um, oh, oh, the oh, Enlightenment? Oh, yeah, no, that, that is what Rousseau wanted. Um, he, he wanted um, a... a, a a, 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 a council of the, the village to sit round mm. and discuss things and then out of this everybody would take part in it and out of this would emerge the, the general, general will. will. The general will turned out to be what was rationally demanded and again this is in a way quite Dewey-esque mm -hmm. that by a lot of people talking and all the different points of view being expressed um, out of this would emerge um, this rational view, which, which he called the general will. Now, the general will was the rational will. All our individual wills, for, for, this is Rousseau, not Dewey, um, are, are less than rational because they're subjective. So 
the, 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 what, what's rational is only what everybody could agree to. But, but, but unfortunately, it wasn't what everybody did agree to, because they, um, because uh, they might be misled by um, President Trump or, or um, Brexit or something. Um, We're going to have to wind up yes. now because the bell's ringing for. Yeah. Because of logistical constraints, you can't always do what you want to do, even if we wanted to carry on here talking. Well, that, well that's the general will. I mean, yeah, the general, the general will, will. will go to mass, whether you want to or not. I just say something about Rousseau. He had a couple of illegitimate sons of his own. Five. Five. Mm -hmm. And he didn't bring them up in the way of Emile. He just gave them to the priests to look after. <laughs> he, put them in, he put them in an orphanage on the grounds that... Um, they would be subject to bad influence being associated with him. Ah, oh, that's very noble of him. Yes. <laughs> so, thank you very much, Anthony. A despotism over the mind, and there I expound why I think that a universal state education is a despotism over the mind and will be a despotism over the body. And that view, although I hold it, is one that's um, promoted very eloquently by John Stuart Mill in On Liberty. So I think the arguments he gives are convincing, um, which is that, that any, any flourishing society requires um, a, a plurality of views. Um, and that if you give education into the hands of the state and make it a universal state education, you are monopolizing education. And also, he doesn't say this, serving the producer interest. Producer interest, you'll get what the teachers and bureaucrats want, not necessarily what the parents want. And that, of course, conflicts, among other things, with, I believe, Catholic social teaching, which says that the primary responsibility of education is on the part of the parents, not on the part of the state. But Mill gives arguments from an impeccably liberal um, perspective for this. He wrote it in 1859. Nobody takes any notice of that bit of Mill these days. But anyway, the second um, bit is I call a transcendent dimension, because I think another reason why the state, particularly the modern secular state, is likely to oppose liberal education is the extent to which, in liberal education, one is opened to um, transcendent aspects of human behavior, human life and human behavior, um, which are not in control of the state and wouldn't be um, subject to the utilitarian criteria um, that we find in people such as Creon. Um, I, I mean, I'm not saying that the state will necessarily um, um, militate against that, but I think that is the gen would be the general direction of things once uh, education, universal education gets in the hands of the state. Mill says that the state should ensure that everybody gets educated. And that is a paternalistic duty of the state. But he makes a very clear distinction between that and the state providing the education. Um, of course, then there are all kinds of details about 
how the state establishes that people are being educated, but, but you know, these are questions that needn't, I mean, obviously interesting questions and homeschooling and things like that um, come up in, in there, but, but I think they don't affect the whatever we think about them. It doesn't affect the general principle about the danger of um, a universal state education leading to a despotism over the mind. And if you think the body over the body is, is, is exaggerated, as I put um, in my article, hardly a day passes these days in Britain without some celebrity chef telling the government what children should be allowed to eat in schools. Nevertheless, they are as obese as they've ever been. Anyway, now I'm, I'm now going to talk about three things, um, slightly separate, but, but there are some connections. I'm going to talk first of all about um, spiritual and cultural education, which I'm sure you all think um, are important things. Then I'm going to talk about identity and education, and I'm going to end up um, talking about happiness and whether happiness is an important value in education. So um, some of this is, 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 is I'm going to base it on um, the English experience. I say English because we are a devolved nation and England has a different system of education from Scotland, it always did, um, but also now from Wales and Northern Ireland who go their own way. Um, the, in the 1944 Education Act, w w which um, was passed at the end of the Second World War, um, and this phrase was repeated in the 1988 Education Reform Act, it says that education should promote um, the spiritual, moral, social and cultural development of pupils. So what I want just to consider briefly is what might be meant by spiritual and cultural in this context. It seems to me that outside a religious context, no one really knows what spiritual means. And the wishy-washy attempts of agencies like the school inspectorate in England, it's called Ofsted, so I may refer to it as Ofsted, the office, everything is an office these days in England, office for standards in education. I think that the wishy-washy attempts of Ofsted to clarify spiritual only compound the problem. According to Ofsted's guidance, Beware guidance, by the way. Um, that's not what you don't want the government to give you. Um, the spiritual dimension of education means that pupils have, and this is the quotation, beliefs, religious or otherwise, which inform their perspectives on life and their interest in and respect for different people's feelings and values. And they have a sense of enjoyment and fascination in learning about themselves, others and the world around them, including the intangible, and they use imagination and creativity in their learning and that they are willing to, guess what, reflect on their experiences. To which my reaction is, can spiritual reality really mean little more than reflecting one's own life and experience and being interested in other people's values? A few years ago, the journalist William Rees-Mogg, who was the more distinguished father of Jacob Rees-Mogg, wrote about what he called the spongiform heart of the British establishment. 
And here it is, I think, laid out for us in all its complacent and unthinking mediocrity. <laughs> Can spiritual reality really mean nothing more than reflecting on one's life, etc., etc.? Indeed, should one always respect other people's values? If, to take a, f a few examples, they believe that adulterers should be stoned, or that homosexuality should be illegal, or that Nordic races were superior to African, or that the sun god requires the sacrificial slaughter of thousands. These seem to me to be a few beliefs we shouldn't really respect. But to I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But, but to refer to um, Ofsted's definition of spiritual, reflecting on one's belief and experience and about the world around us may lead to the conclusion that there is no such thing as the spiritual, except in a, an educationalist's hand-waving sense. Ofsted's intangible sounds just spooky, as if some New Age guru has stumbled into Ofsted's committee rooms and hardly likely to help the spiritual cause in the face of hard-headed materialists, which would include the vast majority, probably about 95%, of my philosophical colleagues. And although it sticks in my gullet to say it, I hope this isn't being recorded, uh, these are intelligent and thoughtful people who have reflected, often quite deeply, and concluded that there is nothing in us or in the world that could answer to the term spirit, or indeed could sensibly and honestly be described as spiritual. So if they're right, let's be honest and drop this woolly talk. In the discussion of spiritual in the context of a national system of education, the religious dimension of spiritual is closed off because not unreasonably, secularists would object to religion in any strong sense being a compulsory element of education. And if you were a materialist, as I've just said most of my colleagues are, who believe that we are no more than survival machines for our genes, which themselves are just bits of chemical stuff, what could spirituality amount to anyway? But some people, or still want something more, something else to aspire to, than that we are just bits of matter operating under the remorseless laws of physics and biology. So spiritual, the word, which has the advantage of making people feel good without anyone being too clear about what exactly it means. But also it has the disadvantage of irre irremediable vagueness. Unkindly, but not unfairly, it could be said, invoking the spiritual in educational circles has come to be a futile efforts, effort to get the consolations and rewards of religion without the cost a manifestation of which was unkindly dubbed spilt religion by the acerbic critic T.E. Hume as long ago as 1911. Hume, which is spelled H-U-L-M-E, by the way, wrote of attempts on the part of rationalists to repress what he saw as the religious instincts. The instincts that find their right and proper outlet in religion, he says, must come out in some other way. You don't believe in a god, so you begin to believe that man is a god. You don't believe in heaven, so you begin to believe in heaven on earth. The concepts that are right and proper in their own sphere are spread over and so mess up, falsify and blur the clear outlines of human experience. It is like pouring a pot of treacle over the dinner table. <laughs> Romanticism then, and this is the best definition I can give of it, is spilt religion. That's from Hume's essay, and Hume, by the way, I think was an atheist, from Hume's essay, 
Romanticism and Classicism in Speculations. Um, now, but if you go into a bookshop today, uh, he was also a friend of Ezra Pound, and so y y you can see how the kind of attitude that the, this very classical, hard-edged attitude that Hume is, is expressing found expression in um, the poetry of, of Pound and to a lesser extent in Eliot and also in the art of Wyndham Lewis, who was uh, I'm hobnobbed with all these people at, at that time. Great and underrated artist, Wyndham Lewis, and writer too. Anyway, if you go into a bookshop today and look under religion and spirituality or self-help and well-being, you will see that what Hume was objecting to flourishes even more in 2019 than it did in 1911, spilt religion in ever more strange and wonderful and exotic guises, but still at heart a shifty attempt, a shifty attempt to evade hard truth and hard thinking. Ofsted's pronouncement on spirituality, under which schools were inspected, by the way, is simply spilt religion in bureaucratic mode and quite particularly nauseating for its ability to be both shifty and hypocritically high-minded at the same time. My advice to teachers is, although they probably shouldn't really take it, is forget it if you're a teacher. Education acts and curricular pronouncements notwithstanding, just get on and teach whatever you have to teach as honestly and passionately as you can. So, to cultural, having dismissed spiritual, the 1988 Education Act was passed by the government of Mrs. Thatcher. Admittedly, at the end of her tenure of office, and in certain respects against her wishes, she didn't actually want a national curriculum, but that is another story, which I could tell you in some other time. But nevertheless, this was the act that set up the national curriculum for England and exams. And I remember Kenneth Baker, who was the minister at the time who pushed it through, boasting to me in his... Um, office in, in the Department of Education, that I am the first Secretary of State to have control over examinations. Yeah. And I thought to myself, well, very good for you, Ken, but what <laughs> happens when things go wrong? <laughs> um, anyway, it, but to go back to cultural, it is inconceivable to me that anyone involved in framing or passing in 1988 the Act could have understood or intended by cultural anything other than that they wanted education to immerse pupils in what is known as high culture, viz. the works of Shakespeare, the poetry of Milton and Wordsworth, the music of Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, and of course Schubert, the painting of Raphael, Leonardo, and Michelangelo, the classics of ancient Greece, the history of Rome, etc., etc. No doubt little thought was to give, given to how these things might be achieved, but these were the things. Not anymore, they aren't. Now, cultural means, with no change in the act, cultural now means multicultural. Embracing cultural, sorry, contemporary diversity, cosmopolitanism, identity politics, and the erosion of a sense of Britishness and Englishness. You might or might not go along with this. I'm not saying you shouldn't go along with this, but what's remarkable is the way a crucial educational term, its meaning, has been subtly or not so subtly transformed by the way it is understood by agencies such as Ofsted and by many teachers and educational administrators, which shows once again the danger of a government passing an act um, 
w without making the terms precise, and indeed passing an act which in includes far too much, the act will be undoubtedly subverted by people who want exactly the opposite to what you think you're doing. Apart from anything else now, instead of, sorry, instead of cultural being understood to refer to an immersion in our past heritage, an obeisance to the great dead who have made us what we are, and enjoyment of those works of theirs which have stood the test of time, cultural is now relentlessly contemporary. All that sense of distance and judgment and perspective which can come from an awareness of our past and what it has to offer is lost in a form of modernity which ignores if it does not despise and hate the past. Actually, it knows nothing of the past, but if it did, it would despise and hate it, and it wouldn't want to be judged by it. I think we're judged by Antigone, for example, and we're judged by Aeschylus and so on and so forth, and by the values which existed in those societies which don't exist in ours. Dante. In many official curricular documents, especially those produced in the period 1997 to 2010, but not confined to those, I'm sorry to say it's still going on under supposedly conservative governments, teachers are told to celebrate diversity and multiculturalism. These things have their advantages, but they have their drawbacks too, which I will be too crude to mention which I will not be crude enough, sorry, to mention here. It's unclear that teachers were or are allowed to point to the drawbacks without being ostracised as racist, even though there is a growing recognition in political circles that there was something damaging to social cohesion and even dangerous in the uncritical implementation of, quote, multicultural, quote, unquote, policies at the end of the 20th century. What has happened has happened, and not everything about contemporary multi multiculturalism in Britain is to be deplored. Some of it we should celebrate even, to use a word beloved of educational officials, not one I ever thought I'd find myself mouthing, but anyway. <laughs> no one now can be happy with some of the attitudes to people of other ethnicities which could be found in my youth, in Chingford, not Dagenham, Joe. The 145. No blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And many of us, it should be mentioned, weren't very happy with it even then. And nor should we have been, and I write as one whose name and ancestry is Irish. At this late stage, all one can ask is that in thinking of the cultural element of education, the older sense of cultural is recognised and respected. For that contains much of the best of what an education should provide particularly to those pupils who have no access to it in their home lives, which, of course, is the majority of pupils in Dagenham, Bradford, Rochdale, Chingford, gone down the drain since I was at Tottenham, where I was brought up, etc., etc. So unless children are given, you know, the things I mentioned, I'm not going to repeat them all again, um, in school, they will never get them, mostly. Well, some will, but, but they should at least be given the opportunity to see that there are these... Um, tr transcendently um, wonderful uh, works of humanity beyond um, Today and Hello Magazine and reality television.
I'm just going to make a kind of footnote, because I think it's quite interesting, about an analogous transformation of a government directive into something quite other than what was intended. Um, we now have, among the standards for teachers in England, England, which I, as I've just said, I was involved in writing. Did I say that? Well, I was. Anyway, um, th they have to, um, in their, they have to subscribe to a certain um, slate of personal and professional conduct. And one of the things it requires of teachers is that teachers are not to undermine, this, this is verbatim from the standards, fundamental British values, including the rule of law, individual liberty, and mutual respect, and tolerance of those with different faiths and beliefs. That's what it says. And actually, we were told we had to include this um, from number 10 Downing Street. I know what this was about because I was on the committee which drafted this phrase for incorporation into the teacher's standards. Indeed, I believe I made an important change in them. As originally drafted, the clause referred to tolerance, not of those with, but tolerance of different faiths and beliefs. Well, as I've already intimated, there are beliefs and faiths for which I have no tolerance. Radical Islam, revolutionary communism, so on and so forth. But I might just be able to tolerate some, anyway, of the individuals who profess them, so the change was made. I introduced the change from tolerance of the beliefs to tolerance of those with. Very small change, which, no, which of course, the government didn't notice. Um, so, so we got it through. Of course, we all know what the... I mean, this is where the dishonesty comes in. We all know what the phrase about fundamental British values was really about. It was about the politico-religious Islamic radicalization in schools. That was what it was about. However, not only has... Uh, well, not actually the current now, but a Secretary of Edu State for Education invoked fundamental British values to include the promulgation of gay rights in an unhelpfully unspecific way. Ofsted, you know, this, this uh, inspection agency, yet again, is now using the same thing to attack, to attack strict Christian and Jewish schools for not being sufficiently explicit in their sex education and, of course, for not being sufficiently multicultural, etc., etc. Once again, this shows the danger of edicts being laid down centrally particularly when they're couched in vague terms. They can be used by the agencies, the regulators, to, to do something quite other than what was intended. Actually, at the time of the clauses drafting, I did point out that many of my contemporaries at university would have failed this test, the test of subscribing to fundamental British values, including democracy and the rule of law and individual liberty, because uh, they actively campaigned against democracy, the rule of law, and individual liberty. They were revolutionary socialists of one stripe or another, Maoists, Stalinists, Trotskyites, and the rest, for whom all such things, rule of law, democracy, individual liberty, were no more than subterfuges by the bourgeoisie to maintain and reproduce its hegemony, as they would have said. Now, of course, many years later, some of these same individuals have enjoyed glittering careers in the law, education, politics, journalism, and entertainment. Some are even now in the House of Lords, rubbishing fundamental British values 
clearly did them no harm, but woe betide you if you're a tiny and law-abiding Jewish school in, say, Stamford Hill or a small Christian establishment deep in rural Lincolnshire. You will have the book thrown at you by Ofsted for not subscribing to fundamental British values. Yep, they don't like Jewish girls' schools. Yep, yep. Hmm. Yeah, whatever they were supposed to teach. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I mean, you know, we we, we can go on about that endlessly, but um, I, I think I've made made the point. I now come to groupthink. So I'm going to start with a quotation from Karl Popper, "Open Society and Its Enemies," um, and the quotation is, "The emancipation of the individual was indeed." the great spiritual revolution which led to the breakdown of tribalism and the rise of democracy. This individualism, united with altruism, has become the basis of our Western civilization. It is the central doctrine of Christianity, love your neighbour, say the scriptures, not love your tribe, and it is the core of all ethical doctrines which have grown from our civilization and stimulated it. Now, Popper wrote this in 1944 in New Zealand, where he was in exile from Vienna, from Austria, because he was a Jewish um, Austrian. Um, yes, uh, and so he was quite happy to, to talk about this individualism as being the basis of our Western civilization. Um, I'll now recall my favourite anecdote about Karl Popper, who, despite my disagreements with him, um, was a great man. Um, in 1974-5, Karl Popper, having emerged... Sorry, Port, Port, sorry, Portugal, having emerged from half a century of authoritarian dictatorship, which I can tell you quite a lot about, if you're interested, only narrowly survived two serious attempts by communist revolutionaries to impose something even worse. The leader of the new and genuinely democratic country was Mario Suarez, a prominent socialist politician who'd returned in 1974 after years of exile in Rome and Paris. And during this time of exile, he'd become a student and admirer of Popper's The Open Society and Its Enemies, from which I've just quoted. Now installed as Prime Minister in 1975, as a mark of respect to the book's author, Suarez invited Popper to visit Portugal. And in the course of his visit, Popper was taken to the na National Palace at Sintra, one of the gems of Portuguese history and architecture. But when he, was arrived, when he arrived there, he was told by its custodians that he would have to go round in a group Popper went mad, jumping on a table, announcing, I will not be a collectif. Eventually, the bureaucratic Jobsworths were convinced that this guest of the Prime Minister and leading opponent of tyrannies and dictatorships everywhere, and a man of immense culture and sensitivity to boot, should be allowed the freedom to go round the old palace at his own pace and in his own time. Unfortunately, collectivist thinking has not ended with the demise of Portugal's Estado Novo and of the far worse 
Eastern Bloc, against which Popper wrote and campaigned so effectively for so long. Collectivism is treating individuals as members of groups rather than as individuals. It is the basis of most modern tyrannies where individuals are seen first and foremost in terms of a larger group to which they are held to belong, and indeed often made to belong. But collectivism is not to be found only in obvious and explicit tyrannies. Its style is well entrenched close to home. For Ofsted, and indeed, I'm sorry to have to say, the current Conservative government in my country, there are demands, current demands, that pupils in, in schools being inspected are categorised and their achievements calculated according to a bewildering number of groups, racial, ethnic and even sexual, to which they are supposed to belong. Not only do schools have to put their pupils in these groups for the statistics Ofsted requires, the inspection people require, they are also expected to be able to account for differences in performance between the different groups, and Ofsted will come down hard on schools for differences its inspectors discern. So if, for example, the Turkish group is doing worse than the uh, Korean group in a given school, which it undoubtedly will be, um, then the school will be criticised and they're told that you know, they've got to pull their socks up and be more, you know, they've got to address this problem. My own initial reaction to this is hinted, was hinted at in the previous section when I mentioned that my ancestry was Irish and Catholic, but it was also English, Scottish, my Glaswegian father, captain Scottish universities at football. Dutch, my mother was a gompers. Jewish, I believe, and doubtless much else were I to go into it. So what am I, here and now, with my mongrel blood and heritage? Which groups or group should I be in? On the complexity of identity in the modern world and the near impossibility of just establishing just what groups any individual should place him or herself in, I recommend Amin Malouf's book, In the Name of Necessity, Violence and the Need to Belong, which was published in 2000. Um, and this is an interesting book because he's an Algerian, French-Algerian, you know, who wants to be both Algerian and, and French and so on and so forth. Um, I say it's, it's interesting and a sensitively written book, at least until its rather lame conclusion. Rather more vigorous on the whole topic of ethnic characterization is Ayan Hersey Ali. So look at her Infidel, My Life, 2007, which, but is presumed, that's presumably not on Ofsted's reading list. Indeed, she'd no doubt, although she's a Som Somali Muslim, she'd no, no doubt be accused of being a racist by Ofsted. She had to leave Holland, by the way, um, because she was being, well, because, she, because there were threats to her life in, in Holland. Um, and and she, I think she has police protection even in America. And anyway, she certainly has protection when she goes to talk at universities in America. And even leaving Ayan Hersey aside, even assuming that I am able to pin myself down as this or that, English, hardly, except by assimilation, I would quite like to be English, British, not sure what that means post-devolution, Irish, God forbid. Uh, what, 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 what do I want to be? In a modern liberal democracy, I am not stuck with that nor should I feel myself constrained by it. And rightly, 
we feel outraged when we hear that even in Britain today that some women, usually, are locked into an oppressive identity they would rather escape from, but whose very existence leads the police and other agencies to treat their protestations of violence with kid gloves. I feel like shouting out, like the prisoner in the famous 60s television series, I am not a number, I am a free man. And I always refuse to fill out the surveys on these matters, which come from just about every agency that sends a form one these days, including, it has to be said, from the government's own cabinet office. But my own impatience aside, what sort of attitude should we encourage in children at school, in our pupils? Isn't the education we want to give partly about allowing people to emerge from their initial definition or categorization into a broader and less restrictive sense of self? Surely, most of our pupils do think of us themselves first and foremost as individuals. They want to be treated as such and judged on their own merits and achievements. Certainly, that's been the attitude I have found in pupils I have talked to, and I've done interviews, mock interviews with, with these people, from places such as Iraq, Afghanistan, the Sudan, and Somalia, who have not wanted to be seen in these terms. They're always very polite, but if I say, oh, I see you come from Afghanistan, you know, can you tell me a bit about this? They, they will, but they, they don't really want to talk about that. They want to, they want to talk about maths or engineering, whatever it is they're applying for. Um, and they don't want to be given any concessions because of their often terrifying origins, which they instinctively and correctively would see as patronizing, being given concessions for that. And even if it weren't, in a genuinely, quote, diverse society, shouldn't we want people to think of themselves as individual members of that society, free to make their own way and life within it, rather than being pigeonholed and corralled willy-nilly into groups over which they have no choice. Further, if we are teachers, does it help us to think of the pupil before us as coming from this or that group with whatever stereotyping profile and set of expectations that doubtless engenders? You see, I spoke contemptuously of Turkish. Yeah. Yeah, I said, you know, no, it's not surprising that the Turkish group does worse in a school than the Korean group. But of course, when we come to individual pupils, they might be from the Turkish group, but, but it's very, I think it would be wrong to think of them just you know, as being Turkish rather than as being what, what, what they are. Um, so we, we should think of pupils in terms of the individual actually before us, probably with a pretty mixed background. I mean, if you say Turkish, what does Turkish mean? Um, you know, what about the Kurds? What about the Armenians? Um, you know, um, well, the ones that haven't been massacred anyway. Um, certainly with, um, and, and I've no doubt there are other smaller groups in Turkey. Um, certainly, I think there's also the point that once having been corralled into groups, whether they like it or not, individual people will find themselves, and this is very sinister, I think, being spoken on behalf of, by so-called community leaders who are speaking on behalf of the whole group, often self-appointed and always self-interested, who may in no real sense represent either the opinions of the individuals they are speaking for or of their own interests.
the key point I want to make is the extent to which we should categorize and think of people, including our pupils, as individuals first and foremost, or in terms of their group identities. At the very least, emphasizing group identities would seem to militate against the social cohesion we all desire, and which is sadly, lack, sadly lacking in many areas, probably because of two or three decades of groupthink. However, at a more fundamental level, the moral premise on which a liberal society is founded is a belief in the value of individual freedom and responsibility. The idea that whatever my origin, I can and should pursue my journey through life according to my choices and my sense of myself. And that is why Karl Popper, a German-speaking Viennese Jew from London, when he received a British knighthood, but via Christchurch, New Zealand, got so angry in Sintra, because he felt that the attitude he encountered there, that one could do something only as a member of a state-sanctioned group, was against everything he thought Mario Suarez should have learned from his teaching. Maybe, and almost certainly he did, Popper went over the top on that occasion, but one has to admire his instinct and his passion. We should fight against groupthink wherever we find it, but nowhere more than in education, which should surely be all about liberating the individual from the group, tribal society. The, the, the book's called The Open Society and Its Enemies, and the two enemies of the open society, according to Popper, are tribalism and um, modern totalitarianism. So I say to my teachers, but I, don't, I hope they don't really, well, it'd be good if they did take my advice, but they'll be pilloried, well, worse than that, they'll be sacked if they do. I say next time a government inspector starts asking you for um, statistics of the groups in your classes, and which is simply and lamentably a new manifestation of tribalism at the very heart of our society, politely suggest that they might read The Open Society and Its Enemies. But of course, they won't have heard about that, and if they had, they won't have read it, and if they uh, have heard about it, they'll probably think it's just some outdated liberal tract. Nevertheless, one of the th three books written at that time, which actually exposed the truth about communism, um, when the whole intellectual um, um, uh, direction in, in both Britain and probably in America was in favor of communism. And those three books, um, or perhaps I could say four, or I might say even say five, um, interestingly, three of the five books I'm going to mention were written by refugees, no, four of them were written by refugees from Central Europe. They were Popper's Open Society and its Enemies, Arthur Kersler's Darkness at Noon, um, Oral Kolnai, um, The War Against the West, um, how many is that? Oh yes, uh, Friedrich von Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, and George Orwell's um, uh, Animal Farm. Um, but all those books were running against the current of, of, of the time. Um, anyway, um, but, but of course people don't read The Open Society and Its Enemies, and not everything it says is, is right, but, but its central message is gone um, now that we are the, ourselves, or one of its central messages, are insisting on treating individuals 
as members of collectives, state-sanctioned and state-demanded. Right. Now I come on to happiness. Can I say yes. You see it synthesized like this is really kind of neat because it almost seems then there's almost a little bit of a defect in Popper's thinking because he only defines two enemies whereas Aristotle and his politics were defined three. Hmm. You know, the mob, the oligarch, and the, the, the totality, the, the tyrant, right? Hmm. And the tyrant being the worst. But we in America are suffering, and I think the world right now is suffering from the enemy of the oligarch. Be careful, my daughter works for Google. It's okay, got mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, you say so. <laughs> yeah. But they are, they are controlling. I mean, mm -hmm. know, they just keep well, one thing Popper taught, and, and I, believe, I believe this Popper taught disbelieve conspiracy theories. Because conspiracies don't work. So, I mean, there might be conspirators. But, but the conspiracies don't work. So treat conspiracy theories with um, suspicion is, would be my reaction. Yeah, OK, of course there are rich people and rich um, corporations. But they, they'll have their day. So long as there's competition, they will go. I mean, Google didn't exist. Well, Alphabet didn't exist three years ago. I mean, um, and there will be competition, and they, they, will, they will go. Um, Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, Popper didn't think that... Um, I, 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 Popper didn't think that, that although he admired uh, New Zealand, he didn't really know enough about New Zealand, which was a socialist society, in fact. Um, he admired New Zealand, um, uh, Britain, and, and the United States immensely. But he didn't think they were perfect, and he didn't think they were completely open. He didn't think there weren't forces within them that, that were militating against the sort of openness that he advocated. So, yeah, I mean, in a way, he's dealing with ideal types. Um, and, uh, I mean, I'm sure he would agree that there the, the, um, were and are elements w within the, even the more open societies which are moving in the direction of the enemies. So, I mean, he, he, he would certainly have been against... Um, I mean, he became more, more um, free market as, as he went on, but, but he, he would have been against um, the, the, the state control of, of industry, um, which existed in Britain in the 1940s. Um, as I said to somebody at um, breakfast, I think, the Labour government in 1945 nationalised everything that moved, and within a few years it had stopped moving. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, thank you, anyway, thank you for um, that. Now, happiness, yes. Aren't we all in favour of happiness? It is, of course, a notoriously difficult thing to define. Is it a momentary feeling of peace, a thrill, a long-term satisfaction in something well done, a justified pride in achievement, a subtle feeling of well-being, or something more than any of these. And by the way, I should just say, by way of sort of slight explanation, the three topics I'm taking are topics I'm taking because they're very prominent in, in educational thinking at the moment. And happiness, well, I'm going to come on to this. Notwithstanding the difficulty of explaining what happiness is, 
How often in educational circles and discussions of child development do we hear, it doesn't matter so long as they're happy? How many schools and mission statements include something about leading pupils to a happy and fulfilled life, fulfilling their potential, etc., etc.? And in these quarters, happiness and potential fulfillment are often treated as virtually synonymous. Now, I'm going to suggest that a lot matters apart from their happiness. But before we get down to that, apart from their happiness, but before we get down to that, why do you think that shortly before he drank, drank the hemlock on the orders of the Athenian court, which had sentenced him to death, Socrates ordered his distraught followers to sacrifice a cock to Asclepius? Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Yes, Asclepius, exactly. Asclepius was the god of healing. So he said when he's dead, you sacrifice a cock to Asclepius. You sacrifice a cock to Asclepius on Socrates' death to thank him for having healed him and healed him of life. So the conclusion is, for Socrates, death itself was a cure for an ill, the ill that was life itself. And that was why he was thanking, or at least telling his followers to thank the god of healing. And I think as far as anything that we know about Socrates is authentic, that is authentic. But I don't think it's because he believes that happiness resided next. I think he did. I think it's very, I love his, his what he mm. thinks he's going to walk into. Mm. Well, he was going to walk into judgment. Um, and, and yes, well, anyway, yeah. I mentioned Socrates here first because he's not usually thought of as a religious figure, but rather as the model, the model of the rational man. But his reason, or was it his demon, his daemon, taught him that he knew little or nothing. He was endlessly dissatisfied with his intellectual and other efforts. Hence, the famous adage of John Stuart Mill, uh, in utilitarianism this time, as to whether it is better to be a pig satisfied or a man dissatisfied, a fool satisfied or Socrates dissatisfied. Now just think about that for a minute. So you can be a pig, you can be satisfied, you can be a pig satisfied or a man dissatisfied a fool satisfied or Socrates dissatisfied? Which would you prefer? Which is better? The point is precisely, Mill's point, is precisely that Socrates, because of his searing intellect and passionate quest for the truth, was, as I've just observed, endlessly dissatisfied. He knew nothing. Whereas the complacent fool down the pub is satisfied only too easily. But aren't we in education and in the studium, in Shivan, opening our pupils' minds to things they will never achieve, raising them from the aspirations, raising them above ascent from the aspirations of the proverbial pub? Even the greatest scientists, musicians, etc., know, deeply know, that they haven't achieved what they aimed at, and maybe couldn't achieve it. 
uh, most of us are very far from being the greatest at anything, precisely because of the ideals we hope to instill through our teaching, we are, in a way, setting our pupils up for dissatisfaction. If they were satisfied, that would show that their ideals were too low, and that our teaching had, in a deep sense, failed. <coughs> Anyone who thinks that they have achieved their potential and sits back satisfied is clearly a person of low ambition and achievement. So, far from nothing mattering, so long as they are happy. Ed yes. Oh, thank you. Um, anyone who thinks that they have achieved their potential and sits back satisfied is clearly a person of low ambition and achievement. I just think, is that true? Um, anyway, um, so far from nothing mattering, so long as they are happy, educationally speaking, it might matter rather a lot. Here I have to take issue with Aristotle, Plato's pupil, who took a somewhat different view from Socrates. Aristotle wrote a lot about what he called eudaimonia, eudaimonia, being the end or aim of life, and also, as up to a point, at least for some, achievable. There are naturally disputes about how this word is to be rendered into English, happiness, well-being, flourishing, or whatever. But anyway, whatever it was, Aristotle thought that it was achievable, achievable as a byproduct of a life well-lived, well-lived morally, politically, intellectually, artistically, or whatever, then any happiness that comes about will come about as a byproduct of those things. And I think on that point, Aristotle is quite right. We, we shouldn't and can't aim at happiness. What, what we should aim to do is to aim at other things, and if, if we do them well, then we may become happy for, from that. And Aristotle so is he's right in that we cannot directly aim at happiness, and that if it occurs at all, it does so at other things we aim at directly, such as searching for wisdom or scientific knowledge, leading a virtuous life, etc., etc. But he is, I think, too complacent. There is not only the Socratic point that all these good states and actions may make us dissatisfied rather than yielding uh, eudaimonia. There is also the wisdom enshrined in the Sophoclean adage, Sophocles, uh, which comes in Oedipus Rex, call no man happy until he is dead. Aristotle wrote a lot about Greek tragedy, but he did not seem to me, anyway, to imbibe its deep pessimism, its deep sense of our inadequacies and of the inadequacy of all our efforts, which may be the only adult way of confronting our condition. And I love the phrase of J.L. Mumbert, the 19th century Protestant divine, translator of, or renderer of Tyndall into modern English, who said, talked about the imperfection which attends all human effort, especially when it aims to avoid it. So that's why I've said to some people I'm a Jansenist. But faced with that, chatter about happiness, and it is chatter too, it's meaningless chatter that you get from teachers and headmasters and whatnot. Chatter about happiness, well-being, potential fulfilled, even flourishing, can seem jejune 
and trivial. The fool, closing his eyes to the truth. As we keep our watch and wait the final day, count no man happy till he dies, free of pain at last. The closing verses of Oedipus the King, Oedipus Rex, but actually the same thought had been expressed earlier by Aeschylus and by other poets. It was clearly part of the ancient Greek wisdom, from which in retrospect it seemed to me, or seems to me, that Aristotle had turned his eyes. And earlier in Oedipus, Socrates had had his chorus say, Is there a man on earth who seizes more joy than just a dream, a vision? Of course, people who prattle on about spirituality don't think about any of these things either. Obviously, all this, what I've just said, is well known to religious people, with such images as the cross, central image of Christianity, the book of Job in the Old Testament, and the Hindu, Jain, and Buddhist stripping away of illusion and desire and attachment, being central to their worldview and practice. I've tried to suggest by this brief consideration of Socrates that even outside of a, an explicitly religious context, happiness may not be very admirable. It may be, in the words of Iris Murdoch, a little thing and not an important thing. And I will end this little disquisition on happiness before I get back to education by referring you to another example, not on the face of it religious, the Faust of Goethe. Faust is a quester endlessly dissatisfied, forever moving on to new fields, new tasks, new challenges. And he loses his life when for once he looks to be satisfied, happy as he contemplates a vision of the achievement before him. And he sees this vision of this utopian town he's set up, having actually chucked Philemon and Balkis off, 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 off it, out of their hovel. Anyway, um, he says, Verweile doch, du bist so schön. Verweile doch, du bist so schön. Stay a while, you are so beautiful. And in this moment of complacency, he loses his life and his soul because the pact he's made with the devil is if he once says, I am satisfied, I have your soul. So, Fairfile, you should read it I, I, and listen to Schumann's interpretation of it in scenes from Goethe's Faust. Um, Schumann really gets to the heart of it. Um, but it's also a trick, he's tricked as well, because actually he's not saying that, he's just saying, if it were, but anyway, so, so, but never mind. The point is, if he's satisfied, then he's lost. At this moment of complacency, as I say, he loses his life and his soul. It is as if in Socratic mode, there is nothing in this life which should detain us in this way. The ambiguous nature of happiness and the inherent discontent of a life which aims beyond the mediocre is also well captured by George Eliot at the end of Romola where the heroine is talking to the child she has taken under her wing. It's an impossible and unreadable novel, but still worth reading. Um, 
because it captures quite a lot about Florence in the 1490s, which she did a huge amount of research on, but it's weighed down by the research. I mean, never mind. Um, anyway, um, she says, or the heroine says, Romola says, it is only a poor sort of happiness that could ever come about by caring very much about our own narrow pleasures. We could only have the highest happiness, such as goes along with being a great man, by having wide thoughts and much feeling for the rest of the world as for ourselves. And this sort of happiness often brings, and this is the point, so much pain with it that we can only tell it from pain by its being what we would choose before everything else because our souls see it as good. There are so many things wrong and difficult in the world that no man can be great. He can hardly keep himself from wickedness unless he gives up thinking much about pleasure or rewards and gets strength to endure what is hard and painful. You're going to hate me for this. There's also the thought well expressed by Boethius in the Consolations of Philosophy that fixation on happiness, or what is often called happiness, may lead to the production of a type of man ill-fitted to face what life will throw at him. Will throw at him. Remember that and of course, as um, Joe pointed out yesterday, he's in prison awaiting his execution. Remember that all the most happy men are oversensitive. And so that's what we're making our children, you see. They have experienced no adversity, and so unless everything obeys their slightest whim, they are prostrated by every minor upset. Words which I think should be borne in mind by those teachers who seem to make pupils, quote, self-esteem, unquote, their guiding principle and ambition. In cultivating self-esteem in this way, they are not only cultivating mediocrity, they are also depriving their pupils of the backbone they will need when they have to leave the cocoon of the classroom. If we are happy, we are in a sense dead. So I don't think that nothing matters so long as they are happy. Nor do I think that we should conceive education in terms of aiming to lead our pupils to a state of happiness, as opposed to inspiring them with what is good and instilling them, instilling in them the strength to endure. And uh, I think that we should also be careful of accepting the 21st century sentimentalism that children cannot learn if they're not happy. How many times you've heard that? Uh, especially if you talk to teachers in primary schools. Well, that is bollocks. Um, they, they could, they can, and in many parts of the world, they still do learn in an atmosphere of fear, I mean. No one can seriously maintain that the music and ballet schools of Eastern Europe of recent memory, and for all I know, even now, were places of ease, fostering or even interested in the emotional well-being of those taught in them. But learning of a very high order undoubtedly took place, higher than in most comparable institutions in the West, indeed. Um, Victoria Mulliver would not let her son go to a strict music school because when she was learning the violin 
her hands were bleeding so much in, 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 um, was she in Leningrad, um, that, that you know, she cried all the time. And then she became one of the greatest violinists in the world. Now, I'm not saying that this is an ideal way of going about things. One could argue, I say, that the personal costs were too high, but which might well be reasonable. But what would not be reasonable would be to assert that learning had not been happening. And um, let me just give you another story. I, I, I know a lot about um, ballet education, um, ballet training. Um, let me tell you about Enrico Cicchetti, who was the greatest ballet teacher ever, um, who was um, uh, Petipa's um, repetitor and trainer. So he trained dancers for Petipa. And then in, in, the, in the Mariinsky School, um, he then taught, among others, just a few, um, Nijinsky, Kosavina, Pavlova, um, Lydia Lepokova, um, and, and all the other great ballerinas and dancers um, of the, who became the, the ones in Diaghilev's company that, that absolutely stunned the West and so on and so forth. Now, this story comes from Lydia, Lep Lydia Lepokova, who said that when they were in ballet class um, in, in Petersburg, um, they only liked it when Cicchetti was angry with them. Because he knew, they knew that if he wasn't angry with you, he had no interest in you. If he was angry with you, um, they knew that, that, that he, he saw that they could do something, and probably that they weren't doing it. Because after all, they were just children, adolescent girls, or boys. Anyway, anyway so, you know, I'm, again, um, I mean, I'm not saying that. Well, I, I know a lot more about this, and I, I will only tell these other stories out, out of the general lecture, but I can tell you some stories about various people, um, Russians, Russians, of course, um, who, who I knew and knew of, and, and their attitude to pupils. Nevertheless, they, they produced the best results. Um, and not, 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 not just best in, I mean, of course, Victoria Mulliver, she's not the, te I mean, she's a technician, but, but, you know, these are people who had great artistry. It wasn't just... Um, technique that was being drummed into them. Um, and another point, actually, actually, I will tell you this because this is relevant. Um, it, nearly all the Russians, and I think probably the same will be true in, in other um, Eastern Bloc countries, they talk in, 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 in art schools, and I mean not schools, I, I don't mean things around the corner, I, I mean you know, the, the great schools, um, they have fantastic respect for their teachers, even though their teachers behave awfully to them. So there is this great presupposition of, of respect for the teacher. And the teacher thinks or knows what the pupils can achieve and won't accept excuses. So it's a no excuses atmosphere, but an atmosphere where they respect the teachers. And the teachers are teachers who themselves normally have, have been great performers or... or um, um, yeah, you, and, and so they're passing on not just the, the technique, which is second to none, but, 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 but the, the artistry too. And if you listen to these Russian pianists, um, they, people will say, 
and actually the Russian dancers, they'll say they're not dancing on the note. They're not playing on the note. No, they're not. They're playing with the rhythm, but they understand that the rhythm is not just playing on the note. So, um, you know, etc., etc. And they say they don't dance on the note. Well, you, you know, but, but they do th things that express the artistry, the, the feeling, the meaning. And that comes from their, their training, which is an unforgiving training. Right, anyway, that's enough about that. The other stories I will not tell in public. Um, now, on, yeah, um, I think, so, so we have to admit that, that um, learning can take place, <laughs> even when children are not particularly happy. Um, maybe sometimes it should, though one doesn't want to be um, cruel. Um, but one could also, um, we also have to look at the many minds, the 30 or 40 or 20 children that are before the teacher, the great crux on which so many fail and so many are broken. So I'm going to end by talking about um, the class. For the best but most cruelly deceived of motives, too many teachers, especially young teachers, are in the deep mess, as she calls it, that Ursula Brangwyn was in D.H. Lawrence's The Rainbow. So if you read Lawrence's The Rainbow, chapter 13, um, you will read more about what I'm just about to, to tell you. Ursula Brangwyn is a teacher, she, she's a young, young girl, about 20, and, and she's trying her hand at teaching, but she gets into a great mess. And Lawrence is writing from experience because he tried his hand at teaching in Croydon in the 1920s. Sorry, sorry, when he was in his 20s. And, and th this is a reflection of his experience. And you're not going to like this. La Lawrence writes in The Rainbow, or has Ursula... Well, no, this is Lawrence, not Ursula Brangwyn. Children will never naturally acquiesce to sitting in a class and submitting to knowledge. They must be compelled by a stronger, wiser will, against which they must always strive to revolt, so that the first great effort of every teacher must be to bring the will of those children into accordance with his own will. And he can only do this by an abnegation of his personal self. So actually it's far more selfless to do this than the sentimental attitude of wanting the children to like you. And an application, Lawrence goes on, an application of a system of laws for the purpose of achieving a certain calculable result, the imparting of certain knowledge. Whereas Ursula thought that she was going to be the first wise teacher by making the whole business personal. And of course, this idea of the stronger wiser will. That's against the current of our time. And while we're turning to Lawrence, um, there is also um, his Jimmy Shepherd. Um, this is a character in an essay that he writes, which my late friend Chris Woodhead, who Ferdy knew, was very fond of, this, this Jimmy Shepherd story. Um, this is in an article Lawrence wrote in 1918 called The Education of the People. And Lawrence says, um, 
we have assumed, we teachers, you know, we wiser people, we, we people think we can do better, uh, we have assumed we, that we could educate Jimmy Shepherd and make him a Shelley or an Isaac Newton. At the very least, we were sure we could make him a highly intelligent being. And we're just beginning to find our mistake. <laughs> 1918. We can't make a highly intelligent being out of Jimmy Shepherd. Why should we, if the Lord had created him only moderately intelligent? Why do we always want to go one better than the Creator? Now, to sum this up about Lawrence, because of our sentimental attitude to children and to ourselves, we don't like all this talk of stronger, wiser wills and knowledge and results. Nor do we like to admit that there are children who cannot achieve much or even anything in the academic line. But however this is dressed up, this is the underlying reality of the classroom. This does not mean being brutal, but it does mean recognizing, genuinely recognizing differences between pupils and not in a misguided spirit of egalitarianism, trying to give all the same, the best, the worst, and the middle, which will not help, sorry, not try, trying to give all the same, best, worst, and middle, which will not help either the best or the worst, and will probably not do much for the middle either. The upshot of vainly trying to educate pupils beyond their real abilities is simply to turn out, no, a quotation from Lawrence, a lot of half-informed youth who despise the whole business of understanding and wisdom. If we are truly concerned about education, rather than the pursuit of a humanly destructive egalitarian utopianism, trying to do what God has ordained cannot be done, we must work out forms of schooling suitable for the pupils before us. We should recognize equal legal and political rights, and we should extend and challenge all pupils, to be sure. But we should not, in deference to a false notion of equality, continually humiliate, and I, and I feel very strongly about this, continually humiliate the unacademic, because much teaching, especially in secondary schools, you know, if you can't read, which, you know, said some 10, 20% of pupils in secondary schools in Britain can't, you know, you go into a classroom, going to a math class, you're told to do some sums, and you've got to read what it says. I mean, I mean you know, you're being humiliated every day, every minute of every day. Um, why you can't read, or we can go into that, but, but um, it may be from bad teaching, but, but there will always be pupils who can't achieve very much in that sort of line, and then, then as human beings, they're, they're none the worse for that. But to force them um, against their limitations, you know, once you understand what they are, is continually to humiliate them, and then you're surprised when they start being rude, listening to their mobile phones, and truanting. Um, well, I would. We should recognize difference, real difference, as we're constantly urged to do by progressive educationists, and develop forms of education for the non-academic, which respond to their often considerable potential for activities of a practical nature. Rather than paying lip service to the indefensible notion of an equal capacity to benefit from academic education, which tends to be what happens when you've got a national curriculum, 
We should set about devising serious practical courses involving apprenticeship and the likes for the less or non-academic, and certainly for those in their early and mid-teenage years. And the more academic should then be released into the challenge and heartbreak <laughs> of serious academic study. So that's enough for me. Thank you. <coughs> And there are a few mi minutes where people can assault me. Yeah, yes, I don't know, Maria, um, yes. I just, I just wanted um, history. Um, sorry, I gave you the wrong... The Coral Knight is the utopian mind, sorry, the utopian mind. Um, he was Hungarian, who became a Catholic. Um, Hayek, the, uh, the road to serfdom, and um, road to I think serfdom, and I, I said Animal Farm and 1984 by George Orwell. Yes, Darkness at Noon. Yes, Kersler, Darkness at Noon. Mm. K-O-E-S-T-L-E-R, another Hungarian. Um, yeah. And Hayek and Popper both came from Vienna. So, um, tells you something. Breeding ground of thinkers. Yeah. <coughs> Maybe about the Austro-Hungarian Empire, although, of course, it was after the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Yeah. Um, yes, yes, sorry, yes. I know you, you, you teach, and you're going to come back at me, aren't you? Yeah. Um, first, you mentioned uh, Schumann's Faust. Uh, what do you think of Gounod? Sorry? Gounod's Faust? Gounod's Faust. Yes. Um, well, I think, I don't know it. I think Gounod's Faust is only about Faust part one. Um, Schumann's, Schumann didn't finish, it, it's only, it's called Scenes from Faust. And um, it, it, unlike, Mo, and Berlioz is um, La Damnation de Faust, which is, all, I mean, it's wonderful music, wonderful, wonderful music, but um, it's completely wrong because, of course, Faust isn't damned, but, but in, in Berlioz he is. But, but, but Schumann, what Schumann does that the others don't do is he, he does give you some of the flavour, and it's a very weird flavour as well, of Faust Part Two, um, which goes beyond um, the Marguerite um, Faust, the Gretchen Faust story. So it's when Faust, when Gretchen is dead, um, Faust, I mean, you know, this is horrible in a way. Faust then wakes up in a meadow and there's wonderful um, nature poetry from Goethe. This is the beginning of Faust part two and Schumann's music is, is right up there with it. Um, and what, what's he done? It's like the River Lethe. He's put in the River Lethe. So it's not actually the River Lethe, but he's given the same forgetfulness by the spirits of nature, so he forgets the awful things he's done to Gretchen. And then he goes on and has all kinds of adventures with um, the emperor, and he invents money, and he drains the, the marshes in Holland, and he um, goes and meets Helen in Troy, and he, he lives with Helen in Troy, and together they um, produce a child who turns out to be Byron. Um, and, but in the end, 
um, yeah, his soul is reclaimed. He does some terrible things, like, as I said, um, the, this old couple are um, li living in the place he wants to drain you know, and, and make into a wonderful 18th century park, um, taming nature. Um, uh, he was you know, the first of the town planners, really. Um, and they turn out to be Balmon and, sorry, Philemon and Baucis. And um, they're, of course, in Ovid, they're protected by Jupiter. So you know that's a pretty pretty bad thing that he's done, and then then he's then he's visited by the by the um, by anxiety, fear, and death, and and he does die. Um, but uh, and then his Faust, sorry, Mephistopheles thinks Mephistopheles is a spirit who denies everything. Um, Mephistopheles thinks that he's got his soul, but would you believe it? Um, he's redeemed by the redeemed soul, and the redeemed soul is Gretchen. Um, and he's redeemed because he who has striven, we can redeem. Um, which isn't precisely the Christian message. Um, um, and it ends up with the wonderful chorus um, about um, Alice Weiblicher, um, yes, when, when a great hymn to everything feminine, everything womanly, which is the source of creation. Also, there's, there's in part two, there's lots of disputes between the, um, the, the people who believe that water is the source of everything and the volcanologists who think that fire is the source of everything. And actually, it's very interesting because it's probably, and Faust and Goethe favour the, 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 the water people, and they're probably right. Um, uh, anyway, but you have to read it. It's, it's an impossible um, thing. And anyway, um, but, but Schumann's got—he's he, got very good, very well. Th th when Faust is reflecting on what he's done, and he sings "Verweile doch, du bist du so schön," so that that part is in Schumann's Faust. Mm -hmm. And then the other question that I had was um, regarding a couple of, um, um, I guess, techniques or methods that are typically used in American classrooms. Yes. Um, so I was curious about your opinion about them. Um, one is the uh, different levels of classes. So say um, at our school for English, um, as a um, as a uh, senior in high school or your last year of A-levels, you would have um, college prep on the bottom, mm. honors in the middle, and AP or advanced placement at the top. So I'm curious about what you think about different levels of classes. Well, well I, th I, think, I, think you've got, you, I think you've got to have streaming. I, I don't see... I, I mean, I know that, that um, there are classes where... In plenty of classes in Britain where all abilities are mixed in. I don't think that helps anybody. Um, you know, m m maybe you develop the, the sort of streaming as children get older. So you know, may maybe you don't start off with that. But 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 I don't see any advantage in not streaming. And to give you an example of, of a school, actually, it's the school I'm talking about where I um, used to interview the, these um, pupils from Iraq. Some the Somalians amazed me because I thought that was the end of the world. Well, Somalia probably is, but some of those pupils were extremely ambitious um, and, you know, very articulate. But anyway, um, yes, so, so 
they, they, yeah, they, have, they had fairly rigorous streaming, but they had big classes at the top end. So the top level would have classes of 30 or more. And that then allowed them to have at the very sort of academic to the bottom level, classes of 10 or 12, where the pupils did benefit from more individual attention. So I think that actually helped the, well, obviously I think it helped the people, but I think it helped everybody. Um, now you might say, well, pupils don't like being um, uh, assessed. Well, they don't, but they get used to it. Um, and they, they, you know, I don't think that they, yeah, and, and you can do it in a way that's flexible, so people can come up and go down indeed. Um, um, and, and I think if, if that's the ethos of the place, then they just take it as perhaps unfortunate, but, but you know, part of the way things are. And they, I don't think they necessarily get too um, distressed by it. Yes, yeah, so that's one question. Yeah. So, I'm so I'm agreeing with those schools. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then um, the other one was, uh, with what it ties in with what you mentioned about um, individualized instruction. So we also um, are encouraged to use, um, the term is differentiated instruction, Yes. or differentiated instructional methods. No. Let's say if one student um, is a poor essay writer, but maybe they're better at creative writing, that instead of giving them a traditional um, essay to do as a, um, a summative assessment, mm. you would mm. have them mm. instead um, come up with a poem that still okay. shows certain skills mastery, to use all the yeah. educational okay. jargon. Um, rather well, than that. So I'm wondering if you could speak to, to that. OK, I, I will speak against that. Um, I, I mean, I think that if these things are worth doing, um, I mean, I, you said essay, yeah, an analytical essay. Yes. Yeah, um, which I used to find hell at school, actually. But, uh, uh, um, but um, yeah, I, I, I mean, no, no. I, I, I think if somebody want, wants to succeed in that line of business, um, you know, writing. I mean, they've got to be able to do do both. Uh, and I don't think you, um, you, you, you do pupils any favors by saying, well, you know, you don't have because you're good at creative writing, whatever that means. You don't have to do an essay that that um, sort of um, analyzes a text, has a beginning, middle, and end, has an argument and comes to some conclusions. Now, that's quite a hard thing to do, but, but I think that that's something that, given that you know, you've got the basic ability, everybody should, should be, dare I say it, made to do it. Um, yeah, and, but, but equally, yes, I mean, um, let, let, let children try out their, you know, an writing an imaginative story. I don't see why it has to be one or the other. And I, don't, I, say, I don't think you do children any favors by saying, you know, you're that, well, I know what this is going to come on to. Inte multiple intelligence. It's now, I actually know Howard Gardner. And um, I once had the temerity to ask him what actually this meant. Um, and well, you know what multiple intelligence is, is, is the idea that there are different types of intelligence for different um, spheres. Um, maybe that isn't altogether stupid. Um, well, Howard Gardner was a stupid man. Actually, um, and he's written a very good book actually recently called um, uh, Truth, Beauty, and Goodness, in which he tries to defend a kind of very rather traditional attitude to what should be taught. But anyway, um, so, so 
but, but then people have interpreted this multiple intelligence view um, or, or theory to saying that some people are good at some things and not others. And therefore, if you have pupils, and then this is a, this is a further con conclusion, it doesn't follow from the mere fact, if it were a fact, um, which, which in fact I don't think it is, because I think actually people who tend to be good at half a dozen intelligences are good at them all. So um, anyway, um, but, but leaving that aside, even if, if, if there were um, these very different intelligences and some people were good at some of them and not others, um, again, I would say that if, if, if pupils want to succeed in a given sphere, they will have to be good at all the intelligences that are relevant to that sphere. And if I can give another e example um, in, in the same kind of line of business, I don't know whether you have it much in America, but we get it endlessly in, in England. Um, uh, what's it called? Yeah, different, the, the, that's right. There are visual knowers, there are auditory knowers, there are kinesthetic knowers, and I think there's another type of knower, which I can't remember um, what it is. Um, so, so some people know by looking visual, some by hearing, some by touching. Well, okay, so I say, um, well, first of all, um, you know, let, let's say you want to learn a foreign language, um, or, or that's on the curriculum. Um, even if you're not an auditory learner, you bloody well better learn how to listen. Right. Uh, um, but, and equally, you know, if, if you want to be a, uh, I don't know, um, a geometrician, I think you should be, you know, be able to look at things. Um, so you'd be visual, kinesthetic. Well, in my view, Everything is kinesthetic. Um, you know, musicians, are, um, obviously they're auditory, but, but, but they're moving all, all the time. Um, you're touching things. Um, a dancer has to be able to listen, auditory, and see, you know, otherwise they're not going to be much good. But also they've got to be able to move. So, first of all, I would like to know, and this is usually in primary school that these dunderheaded teachers start defining, how on earth do they decide that, you know, little Darren is an order, well, he's probably a kinesthetic learner because he can't sit still, you know, that's probably what it boils down to. Um, I, I don't know, perhaps I'm overdoing this a bit, but, 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 but still, a little Darren, who I'm sure is a sweet little child with no, no um, malevolence in him, whatever, um, or Sharon, um, yeah, I mean, they've got to learn if they're going to get on at all with reading and writing, that they've got to, etc., etc. So, yeah, I, I, what Howard Gardner said to me was that um, uh, that, that about m multiple intelligences was that you, you should, when you're explaining something, you, you know, in a, in a classroom, you, you should have different ways of doing it. You know, so you, if you're trying to explain multiplication, let's say, um, you know, you, you, you could take different ways into it, like, you know, it's repeated addition, or I don't know, or I don't know exactly what, but, but you know, there are different ways of presenting it. And I think that's, that's fine. I think teachers sh should have different ways of presenting things. And I'm sure that good teachers always do this. It's part of their armory. So that didn't strike me as being particularly um, controversial. And I, uh, the other thing he said was 
that if you find pupils with real difficulties, then maybe you could see how this multiple intelligences might apply. And, you know, they might be deficient, I don't know, in, in one particular intelligence that needed then some kind of boosting. So that's what, that is from the horse's mouth. That is what Howard Gardner himself told me. Right. Yes, sorry, you were meant to, uh, yeah, you were going to ask a question, sorry. I'm speaking as an outside observer, I've got nothing to do with education, but from what you're saying about this grouping within Ofsted, yes. I mean, it strikes me that they're grossly over-resourced, and they're going in for sort of, if not micromanagement, yes. something very much akin to it. Well, I'd close Ofsted down tomorrow, actually. Yeah. I think far from, yes, but... Um, yeah, and it's appalling when they come into schools or, yeah, and, and also actually to teacher training institutions because what they want, what they ask for straight away, they shut themselves up in a room and they want all the data. And all the data means pages and pages of, of these um, showing how every group and every year and every class, you know, I don't know what the groups, well, you know, they might be Bangladeshi, Turkish, um, or... I'm not sure what they're all defined, you know, they tell you what groups to do, but there are a lot of them. Um, and you have to show, if you've got uh, members of a certain group in a certain class, what their performance is in, that, in, in all the subjects. So for every class, every year. So, so they spend hours kind of poring over this data. Not only is it a total waste of time on their part, it's an even worse waste of time on the part of the teachers, in, in my opinion. And, and it's one of the things that um, sort of obstructs real teaching when the teacher is just talking to the pupils as human beings, I think. But, but it's not just Ofsted. Um, I think firms are now being forced to um, produce statistics. You know, not in school, I mean, not in education, on, you know, how they're employing people, or sort of how the, you know, what groups they're employing, whether there's differentials in payment and so on and so forth. And it's endless once, once this sort of thing starts. And that was imposed fairly recently by a supposedly conservative government. And I will need to, yes, a tea, I was going to say a beer, yeah. Actually, actually, I love being a controversialist, and anyone who knows me knows I have a puckish sense of humor. And here is my very controversial self-description on my webpage as a professor at the American University of Paris. I teach undergraduates mathematics applied to finance and make them build empirical analytical models. It is the last benevolent dictatorship in the world in which I, the fascist, subject them to absolute conformity to my will. Excellent. Yet at the end, they are intellectually more capable and operate at a higher skill level than without my brutality. They are, in fact, more free. This fact of dramatic self-development under my benevolent dictatorship itself inspires another vector of inquiry into their analysis of themselves to the visible and invisible world. Well, th thank you very much for that. I, I, yeah, I mean, I did say, no, no. No, no, I did say, I did say at the beginning, um, yes, no, not yesterday, on Monday, and maybe I didn't emphasize it enough, that by liberal education, I meant an education that freed people. Um, but 
of course, I agree with you and with D.H. Lawrence that a liberal education has to proceed on the assumption that the teacher is an authority, maybe dictator. Did you say dictator? I did. Yes, well, but, but let's, let's um, agree. Uh, yes, let's agree a stronger, wiser will. And I, and I think, I mean, I, yeah, I, I mean, I think also that, that there is certainly room for discussion, um, even, even before they leave my classroom. I mean, if I was teaching even seven or eight-year-olds, you know, I mean, I, I would tell them what's what and get them to do it. But, but, but I'd like it if they ask sensible questions and um, will learn to distinguish between sensible questions and silly questions and, you know, raise points. And they do, um, or can, which is one of the reasons why even with children of about by nine or so, I would say, um, it, it's important to have subject specialists because you want people who actually know the subject. So if they get these off-the-wall questions from pupils, um, they have some ability to answer them. Unfortunately, too many people teaching in primary schools don't—they well, don't know anything. Um, they're not specialists in anything, and they—they lack confidence in key areas like maths and science and history, where you know you have to know a bit on the whole. So yeah, um, so, so yeah, going along with that, yes, there's also that the teacher actually. It's not just a stronger, wiser will. It's somebody who knows more and has sound knowledge. But I don't see that's inconsistent. You know, everything I've said, and I don't know about, I'm not going to comment on your practice, but I don't see why it's inconsistent with um, having a certain amount of sensible discussion and even you saying, I don't know something. Or when, when I was teaching my seven-year-old Latin, I had to look up a word the other day. He was quite surprised. I was slightly shocked, but you know, <laughs> it happens. <laughs> yes. So I, I take it you would not agree with our American assertion that education is all about feeling good about yourself. <laughs> well, I would not agree with that, and I don't think anybody should feel good about themselves. Ah, very good. <laughs> as I said, I'm, as I said. I'm temperamentally a Jansenist. Um. <laughs> this one. Um.